Julianne Wefflin was a 28-year-old from Deer Park, Washington. She worked for the Bonneville Power Administration and loved the outdoors. On September 16, 1987, on her way home, Julie stopped at a substation to make sure it was working correctly. Julie never made it home. She was never seen again. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. Encountering disappointment is a part of life. Nobody goes through life succeeding at everything. Not Michael Jordan, not Warren Buffett, and certainly not Nickelback. So to prosper in life, whatever prosper means to you personally, we must find ways to overcome failure. We must discover ways to recover from expectations that aren't fulfilled. And we must steel ourselves against the prospects of not getting what we want. If we don't, life becomes miserable. We start to see conspiracies at every turn. We can start to believe everyone else is working against us. When really, people have their own desires. And most of the time, your wants and their wants just don't mesh. That's just the way it goes. The world does not revolve around us. It revolves around the sun. Well, in the disappearance of Julie Wefflin, and we'll be talking about some other women today, she was part of an outdoors group in the Spokane area, and a man in the club wanted Julie. Being that she was married, Julie turned down his advances. Then Julie was gone. And we're left to determine if hers and these other women's disappearances were committed by the women's reject. And now a summary of the case. This is brought to you by my friend Megan Good's website, charlieproject.org. Julie Wefflin had her whole life in front of her. At the time of her disappearance, she had been married to Mike, a house painter, and everything was going well. Julie was working for the Bonneville Power Administration, also known as the BPA, going out and repairing electrical lines and remote substations. This allowed her to be around her other passion, nature. Julie loved the trees and mountains and bodies of water that the state of Washington had to offer. She got to work in the outdoors every day. Everything was perfect. Then, on September 16, 1987, toward the end of the workday, an alert came in that the substation at the corner of Four Mound Road and Cooley Height Road in Spokane County had a problem. Nothing that needed immediate attention, but since it was on the way home, Julie volunteered to check it out on the way. However, Julie never made it home. A call from her husband to the BPA that evening caused the search to start for Julie. 
The first place people looked was the substation. They ended up finding Julie's vehicle. Doors open with tools and her helmet strewn over the ground. Canvassing of the area yielded no additional clues. She was never seen again. There was no movement in Julie's disappearance until 2011, 24 years later, when a former co-worker of hers put together a team to figure out what happened. Over the last nine years, they have established substantial circumstantial evidence pointing at one man in particular. You will hear about that person of interest today. In addition, though, you, the listeners, will for the first time hear about two other missing women from the same area, Deborah Swanson, who disappeared in 1986, and Catherine Ray Gregory in 1981. This team has put together evidence, once again circumstantial, that this person of interest in Julie's disappearance could be responsible for theirs as well. When we are done today, you'll have to ask yourself these questions. Number one, what are the odds that a man would know two missing women who seemingly didn't know each other? Number two, how are we to square the idea that one man could be responsible for three disappearances when all three are very much different in their structure? And number three, now that the person of interest is deceased, what can be further done to prove or disprove he is the perpetrator of these crimes? Julie's and Deborah's families are somewhat convinced the person of interest is the actual correct suspect in these women's disappearances. Catherine's relatives have not been contacted, so their beliefs are unknown. The guest for this episode is Julie Wefflin's friend and former co-worker, John Polos. Unfound news. I've been talking about it for at least a month now, and it's finally here this Sunday, May 24th at 8 p.m. Eastern, right after the Think Tank. This is another program that will be for premium Patreon members. However, we may work out something where everyone else has access to the new program after the fact. Dr. Eric Grabowski will be the host. What's it called? Unfound on the ground. It will broadcast through Zoom. The basis for this new program is education. The goal is to help the audience become better advocates, researchers, and investigators. Cases will be used to further the theme for that episode. The theme for the first presentation, Raising Awareness of Missing Persons, Mindsets, and Methods. It may be a limited series, it may exist for 50 years, we're just not sure right now. But I encourage you to join Patreon if this and all the other things Unfound offers on Patreon sound interesting and engaging to you. Patreon.com forward slash Unfound Podcast. Next, we have begun the process of moving Unfound t-shirt production over to my assistant, Heather. She already has her own private business in which she makes door hangers, signs, shirts, and other items. Please check out her Facebook page, Heather Eilette Design. That's A-Y-L-E-T-T-E, Heather Eilette Design. 
and her website, heather-ilet-design.myshopify.com. I'm very happy to bring one more thing, like with Natasha and the website, back under unfound control. Finally, the remains found on Dennis Bowman's property in Michigan have been positively identified as his adopted daughter, Andrea Bowman. He has been charged with her murder, and that is on top of the murder charge he is already facing in Virginia. We at Unfound continue to believe Dennis Bowman is a serial killer and killed multiple women and children. And we believe in the coming years, their deaths will also be pinned on him. Where you can find Unfound. Unfound supports accounts on Podomatic, iTunes, Stitcher, Instagram, Twitter, Spotify, Deezer, and Facebook. On Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern, please join us on the Unfound podcast channel on YouTube for the Unfound live show. All of you can talk with me and I can answer your questions. And for Patreon this week, I need to thank Kristen and Tanya. I'm so happy to have on this episode of Unfound a former co-worker and friend of Julie Wefflin, John Polos. John, welcome to Unfound. Thank you. Uh, John, um, it's uh, it's been a while. Uh, we've known each other for a while. I think we first talked in 2017, early 2017, about Julie, and it's finally great to have you on the program. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, thanks a lot, Ed. I appreciate what you do. Uh, I want you to know that. Um, I met Julie. I'm a retired engineer from the Bonneville Power Administration. I live in Battleground, Washington. And uh, my background is uh, I now teach school. I'm 77. I teach math in a local school. But I was a reserve deputy sheriff for two years, and I have 17 years. I'm still in search and rescue. And my engineering background gave me a little bit of ability to, to listen to people and, and put facts together. And in uh, 2010, I'd been thinking about Julie, and I was involved in a missing person case of the person that was missing for 10 years, 20 years in Clark County. We went out, we looked at the evidence, and I figured out the case and solved it. I can't give out the name because the family's still around, but it's in the Reflector newspaper. Anyway, I solved the missing person case, and that got me thinking, what about if I solved one, why couldn't somebody solve another one if you just dig into it? And that was my idea that I decided to go ahead and start digging into it in late 2010. For Julie? For Julie. For Julie, okay. Right. So you do have um, some law enforcement experience? Co- yes. Correct? Okay, and you... Yes, and, yes. Okay, and what was exactly, at the time of Julie's disappearance in 1987, you worked for the BPA as well. What was your exact um, position, and how did that relate to what Julie was doing at the time at the same company? Well, right. I was in our control center in Vancouver, and uh, I was a a lead uh, senior engineer in operations planning and uh, power scheduling and streamflow forecasting. And Julie worked next door to us the next building over. She just got transferred over from Portland, and she was working in our safety office. So uh, this was early 1980s. So we, we all eat in the same cafeteria. We all know each other. So mm-hmm. we got uh, several of us went to talking to Julie. And we said, oh, why don't you fit into the substation operator apprenticeship? It's a wonderful career. So we talked her 
it and helped her get the paperwork going, and she got accepted. She's one of the first female Bonneville Power substation operators, and so that's how I met her, early 1980s. Wow. So you knew her for like for at least five years before she disappeared. Yes. Wow. Okay. And this is called the BPA, Bonneville Power Authority. Administration. Administration. Bonneville Power Administration. It's like the Tennessee Valley Authority or Con Edison or Pacific Gas and Electric. It's the major high voltage utility for a geographical area. Parts of the United States is a federal entity, as PBA and BPA is. Other parts of the country, it's a private utility like Con Ed, but there's only one high-voltage company in an area you don't duplicate. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's the company uh, that you worked for and you were working for at the time. And maybe once again, just yes. to give the listeners an idea, at the time of Julie's disappearance in 1987, how long had you worked there? About? Uh, 15 years. 15 years. Okay, thank you. All right, so, but it's the no, same. More like almost, no, almost 20 years. Almost 20 years, okay. Yeah. Okay, so am I then to understand while you're working at BPA that you also uh, were a reserve deputy at the same time, or was that after? Yeah, that, that during it was 80, 83 to 85, I was a reserve deputy for two years. And then in 2003, I came back into it as in search and rescue. I've been in search and rescue since then. All right, great. All right, thank you. All right, you already uh, – we've talked, of course, about how you met Julie early 80s. You told her that she should apply for a job at um, the BPA. So would you say that you were like her supervisor at the time, or were you in totally, two totally different sections of the company, or, or what? No, I was just co-working in another building. I was not her supervisor. Okay, okay. But we all knew each other. We all know each other there, you know, so we were all just trying to help her. Okay. And, uh, and, uh, of course, as we know, things have changed since the 70s and 80s, but at the time, was she one of the few women doing the job that she was doing? I'm not positive, but I think she was our first female substation operator, and there were several more after that, mm-hmm. and okay. there's quite a few now, I'm sure. Okay, and uh, I do uh, know that she was married, although I, I'm not, I don't think we're going to get into her husband's name at the time, but... He was sure. married, and we should mm-hmm. state for the record that he has totally been ruled out as as being a suspect. He was like fifty miles away when she disappeared. But did you Absolutely. ever? Yeah, did you ever meet her husband? Do you remember him? Or? I never did. I never did. But he was quite active for for about seven years trying to find right. Julie, and right. then he finally just gave up and backed off and uh, went right. on with his wife. Right. Okay. And she did not have any children. That's my understanding. No. No kids. No. No children. Okay. No. So, um, all right, so she's working uh, in a a different division, different uh, building than you are, but you know her, like like you said, from maybe the cafeteria. In fact, you were one of the people that suggested she get the job that she had at the time of her uh, disappearance. What maybe just personally, just personality, you know, what do you remember about her? How would you uh, portray her, what you think back 30-some years now? Well, she was a nice, quiet, thoughtful girl. At the time, she would have been about uh, late 20s, late 20s, mm-hmm. or mid, mid-20s, not mid-20s, because she was a graduate of Grant, uh, Grant High School class of 77 in Portland. Okay. So this is about this is about five years later, so she'd be 22, 23. She would have been about, let's see, about 28 when she got abducted. Right. It was 10 years after she graduated from right. high school. Right. Really thoughtful, quiet girl, and uh, nice person. 
mm-hmm. and uh, smart. So we thought, you know, uh, substation operator is a great career, and it's a lot of electrical training. Okay. What is that job? I think this is, uh, once again, I think this is something that the listeners really need to understand about her job. My perception, I've never worked for a, co- a power company or anything. The closest I've gotten was I worked for the Department of Transportation in Pennsylvania during my summers in college. But what would her job uh, necessarily entail? Was it a, was it something where she they worked in teams or were people in her position working alone a lot? What would you say? Alone, but she goes through three years of training as an electrical and at working at substations, learning how to flip switches and read meters and understanding the, how the power system works. And one of our one of the things we do for our sub-operator trainees is they have to spend one year on the east side of the Cascades and one year on the west side minimum, so they know both sides. And she was on her she was over on the east side of the Cascades out of Spokane, so she already worked west side. And then. Uh, once they graduate out of the program, then they're assigned wherever, and then usually go out to a substation beside the by themselves. Okay. To work and do switching and maintenance and then uh, throw breakers and stuff when the dispatchers are going to work on a line. She's there to check to make sure the breakers get tripped and the disconnects. So would you say that a person in her position spends a lot of time by him himself or herself doing this job? Yes. Okay. Um, I'm guessing these people that we have to remember this is the 1980s, so cell phones, uh, we had the analog ones, but I'm guessing the power company just had walkie-talkies, radios. Well, they had a two-way radio, and some of the substations have communications, and some of the vehicles had a a two-way radio because they're being dispatched out to emergencies. Mm -hmm. And they're electrical workers just like an electrician, and they get licensed as an electrical worker. Okay. And so they had radios, and... uh, they log into substations and report where they're at, you know. Okay. All right. So that was part the of the – now – Please. Yeah. The pr- procedures now changed after this happened. Now they can't just go out to a substation. they got to look around make sure nobody's there. Then they open up the gate, pull in, lock the gate behind them and call in. And they don't do anything. If somebody's milling around outside the substation while they're working, they don't go out until they report it. But okay, at the that's... time, nobody thought about this. Who'd, you know. All right. That's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. I certainly want to uh, come back to that. That's I think that's an interesting part of all of this. Okay, um, I, I should ask this: being that they do uh, work by themselves, uh, I don't know what the um, laws were in Washington at the, at the time. I don't know even know what they are now. But do you believe that any employees uh, carried weapons because they worked alone by themselves? Even you know maybe sometimes they even have to go out in the middle of the night. You know, something happens, you know, there's a power outage. Do you know of any employees who would, you know, carry weapons or anything because of working by themselves, sometimes in some remote areas? Right. That's a great question, and I've got a great answer for you. We're not allowed to carry weapons unless we're law enforcement in a, in a government vehicle, but I'm sure people did. Now, one thing, I talked to some female employees at Bonneville Power a few years back, and they said, well, I go out and I do real estate. But I can't carry a gun. Say, wait a minute. She says, if I use my own car, then I can. So people have thought about it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I can't prove that anybody right now is carrying a weapon when they're out of work. We never did. Okay. But I've heard people say that I'm going to drive my own car so I can take a weapon with me because I'm out at a remote site seeing different houses. Right. But the law is if you're in a government vehicle like Julie would have been in that day, it's illegal to do that. That's not a crime. It's a federal mm-hmm. rule. It got a work rule. Okay. It's legal. She could have a if she had a concealed carry permit. 
Mm-hmm. She could, in the state of Washington, she could legally carry that weapon with her. You just can't enter a tavern or a couple other a post office, right. a couple other businesses. Right. As a state law, most criminal laws are state, and that would let her do that, but federal regulations wouldn't. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you for explaining I'm that. I'm sure she was unarmed. Okay. You're yeah. pretty sure. I just wanted to see. I guess what I'm trying to get the idea is, um, you know, how, you know, quote unquote, dangerous is this job? Once again, thinking that people are out there probably by themselves going out to remote areas. Uh, of course, they have tools, they have equipment. Uh, we all know about how there's, you know, you know, I remember when I lived in Las Vegas, it seems like copper was being stolen out of light poles and everything all the time. Maybe that was something that, you know, your employees uh, would run into once in a while in Washington in the 1980s. So these, you know, this is what I'm, I'm trying to set this up just to get an idea of the environment for that job. Yeah, we do have a little bit of copper theft, and a big case was maybe 15, 20 years ago. Maybe I was still working. Mm-hmm. Somebody went to a local Bonneville Power substation and was going to steal copper, and they got electrocuted doing it. Wow. I don't know what's There's 500,000 volts on some things. There's some things that are look to be safe, but even the grounding rods and stuff, if you pull the lead off a grounding rod, hold on to the lead, you're going to get electrocuted, even though it's a grounding rod. So there's danger there. Mm-hmm. We've only lost a couple of employees over the years due to work accidents. We've lost a few. Mm-hmm. Julie's the one and only person that's missing and was abducted that we know of in right. Audible Power's history since 1937 when we were formed. Okay. That's what makes this so, uh, a very unique uh, set of circumstances. But on that topic, before Julie's disappearance, once again, your memory. Any employees doing the type of her job go out, ever get attacked? Anything like that? I realize no disappearances, but ever anything where one of your employees, you know, had a run-in with somebody, anything like that? A real rare, but it normally it'd be um, a right-of-way person is going out and looking at properties that might be considered for a power line and somebody get irate and assault them, but it's real rare. It's happened, but I don't remember the exact details. Okay. Not anything we expect with our 3,500 employees and 1,000 um, mm. uh, subcontractors. And Okay. So, Okay. Just so it's you would say even though these people that do this job, you know, spending a lot of time on on their own, it's relatively a safe job. Yeah, you come because you're well trained and you have the right proper safety equipment. You're well prepared. Bonneville Power prepares us well, and they train us well. Okay. Very good. Uh, I don't know if you knew her well enough uh, to answer this, but I do have to ask this. Um, at the time of her disappearance, you know, do you remember? You know, the last time you saw her or talked to her before she disappeared. Yes, I do. I remember that was after she got accepted before she reported. Oh, hey, Julie. And her name at that time was Weplin, so I didn't know it, but she was married to uh, her husband, Mm -hmm. Mike Weplin. But I didn't know him, and he was a house painter. But I saw her there. Okay, well, great. You're shipping out. Hey, good. We'll see you. I I never heard from her again for a couple of three years. Mm -hmm. But we knew she was around the system. People would tell us, hey, she's over there now. And we knew she had gone over to the east side to uh, mm-hmm. Bell Sub out of Spokane. And uh, But the last time I saw her was at Bonneville Power's office at Ross Substation, Vancouver, about 85, okay. probably 85 or 84. Okay, so you, it was, was a couple years. Thing. So you you didn't know what was going on in her life necessarily because you weren't you know you weren't working with her, but you did know her yeah. you know from years before. But you hadn't spoken to her in a couple years. No, I had not. Okay, great. All right, let's move up to um, 
Well, let me ask you this. Um, once you found out, you heard, and we'll get to that day. We're going to actually do that next. But once you heard that she disappeared, did you ever hear of anybody saying that she was having any problems with anybody, people who knew her, who were working with her every day? Did she ever complain Not about that anybody? Time. No? Not at that time, but later investigating it, we dug up a lot. But at the t that time, we didn't know anything, you know. Okay, so in 1987, yeah. in you know, September, October, November, December 1987, you, uh, once again, just being an employee at the time, I realize you became an investigator years later, but at the time as an employee, nobody ever got back to you through the grapevine saying, well, you know, she did say she had this problem, nothing like that at the time. Not at that time. I remember everything hinged on September 16th, 1987. Right. She disappeared. Everything changed after that. Right. But she, once again, there was never anything where she went out to a job and came back and said, you know, I think some guy was following me today or anything. Yeah. No, I, I wouldn't know that anyway, but her supervisors at, at uh, Bell Sub would know that. Okay. And they did tell me stuff that happened after, oh. the, after we started investigating. Okay. And, but that wasn't until... But not at the time. Once again, what you found you started hearing about this in 2010. No, I started thinking about the case about hey, I just solved the case here in 2010 in Clark County. I'm going to look into the Westland case. I believe think I believe there's always evidence out there mm -hmm. that's never been uncovered. Okay. People see things and don't know they saw it. Right. So I just I've always felt believed that, and that was the key to solving the case if you couldn't solve. And that, but it wasn't until 2010 that you started going back over things that you started to hear. Well, you know, she was talking about something, something that could have led to her disappearance. Yes, yeah, other people, third parties. Right, third but, parties. Uh, I, I want to say that it it wasn't until 2011 I formed a team of, uh, mm -hmm. and we've had people come and go. We've had about 12 to 15 people on the team. Three or four of them didn't want their names released, and I or I haven't heard back from them. I'd like to thank the people that gave me permission to join my team. I don't know when that's appropriate to do. We can do, we can certainly do Later. that uh, at, at the end. We can do that uh, before we complete sure, this. Bet. No, pro you no bet. problem. All yeah. right, so let's it's, a team effort. it's been a team effort. I'm sure it has, uh, and I know that. Uh, and <laughs> I've seen your list. I've seen your list of people. In fact, I've talked to a couple of them. You know, way back when, when you gave me their numbers. All right, let's move up to September 16th, uh, 1987. We've already gone, I think, through what your responsibility was uh, at BPA. But what, of course, you did not see uh, September 16th, 1987. And, of course, you were not there that day. You had not seen Julie in a couple years. But, of course, we already established you knew her, and you kind of suggested she yes. get the job that she had. What have you learned yes. about that day, what Julie did, where she was going, what was her work schedule? What have you learned? All about she was working out of a major substation called Bell Sub with like five hundred employees and she was stay at that substation working there and it was in the afternoon, I don't know whether it was two, two thirty, somewhere around that time. They got an alarm of low nitrogen or something of that effect at uh, Spring Hill substation, which is west of Spokane, and it's not her duty assignment. She only had another hour to work, but she says, I live out in Deer Park, and I, I can go home that way and check the substation. So, oh, okay, so she wasn't assigned out there. She volunteered to go out there and check the substation on her way home, and that's, in fact, what she did. So by the time she disappeared, there weren't very many people at, at Bell Sub, and nobody was looking for her. 
it wasn't until later, I don't know when that was, later that evening when her husband called in or something that they knew she was missing. Hmm. But uh, so, she was going to go to the substation, fix it, and then go home. Okay, so uh, let me just go once again. Let's go, that's very good. Let me just go through this. So through for the listeners. So what you're saying is there was a like you said a warning, and Julie was going to go check this substation out, even though it wasn't part of her regular detail. Correct. Okay, and it was on her. Did you say it was on her way home? The substation. Right. Okay. Correct. She'd go west to the substation and then go north to Joe Point where she lived. Okay. But it was. Uh, how far would you say the substation was um, from where she lived? Do you know? Probably 20 miles. 20 miles, and the substation's probably 25 miles from uh, Belsa, the main headquarters of Bonneville, in okay. that area. Okay. And and the listeners should know, by the time you're hearing our voice for this interview for the episode, I will have uh, created some maps. And I know John has made some excellent maps uh, as well that I will be using uh, to make my own maps, but John surely gets uh, the credit for them. We'll get the credit for him because he's uh, back in 2017. He sent me some very good diagrams, so all of you can really understand what we're saying here. Because I know maps are tough to describe in just audio. Okay, so is this a situation, John, where uh, BPA employees drove their vehicles home? So she'd be driving a company vehicle home that day. I think she had a company vehicle, but it might not have been because she would drive her vehicle to work and pick up a company vehicle to go out to sites for a day or two or what, however long. So she may have had her vehicle, and of course she would have taken her vehicle home. I know it was a van. Mm-hmm. And I, my thinking is it was her vehicle and not a government vehicle, so she didn't have a radio in it. Okay, so you're saying that when this happened at the substation, that was her vehicle that was on there and not a BPA vehicle? I'm 90% sure. Okay. I'm not absolutely sure. Okay. So um, so she is, says there's this warning. Uh, would you say the type of warning is common? Yeah, it comes in. We get alarms all the time. We've got 500, over 500 substations, and most of them are unbanned. So we'll get an alarm, uh, current overload, voltage overload, breaker tripped, low nitrogen in the insulation system, or hundreds of different alarms. And they go into what's called our SCADA system which is supervisory control and data acquisition system, which is a band site that gets all these alarms, and then they'll call the substation and say, hey, nothing to worry about, or you ought to send an operator out there to that substation. Okay. So what you're saying is, John, is that Julie, there was no plan that she had to go to the substation, which uh, the intersection is Four Mound and Coley Height Road, correct? Coley Height Road. Coley Height Road. Coley Height Road. I knew, it's, a, it's a, a Y intersection. Right, okay. I knew I was going to get that wrong. So there's a substation yeah. there, Four Mound and Cooley Height Road. Uh, I'm, I'm sure most listeners have seen uh, what one of these uh, places looks like, and I'm guessing it's surrounded by like a, uh, a fence and a barbed bar wire fence or something like that? Yes, it's got a chain link fence and locked. And, uh, mm-hmm. okay. and it's in an open area as you drive down. It's a, it's a feeder road, and I'll tell you that later on in the story, but there's about a car a minute that goes by it. It's in, clearly in the open. You can see everything about the substation. And uh, we'll get to that later. Yeah, and, we, uh, yes, we will. It's not hidden, and it's not it's not a real remote road. It's an access road to an area, so there's about a car a minute going by. Okay, so she goes out there. She's kind of, I don't know if we're saying taking one for the team, but she says, don't worry about it. I'm headed that way. 
I'll take a look at it. She's in her private vehicle. Maybe she puts some of her uh, tools in her own vehicle and says, don't worry, I'll hit it on the way home. And what time Correct. do you think that she would have arrived at this substation? I'm guessing 2.30, but based on the fact that somebody saw her there at 3.30 and she disappeared right after that. Okay, so... So it might have been 2.30 or 3 o'clock she would have arrived at the substation. Okay. So 2.30 to 3 o'clock, somewhere in there is when she got there, and we'll talk about this witness later. So she's there, and when do – and you've kind of already already uh, said this, but uh, we'll go over it again. When did somebody realize that you know, maybe something wasn't right? Well, I either – by the time she was abducted, most people would have gone home for the day, and I'm not sure if – her husband, Mike, called into Bonneville asking, or they said, hey, she's never called in from the sub and cleared out of there, you know. So somebody at Bonneville most likely called the sheriff's office, and they sent a deputy out there. I've talked to the, I've personally talked to the deputy that responded out there. He doesn't want his name released. Okay. But he's given us a lot. He's long retired. Okay. So somebody called it in. They went out that evening and found her car there, stuff strewn around, and, uh, signs of a struggle, and uh, obviously something had happened. But okay. it wasn't until after hours they discovered that. Okay, so if we're to believe uh, she got there 2.30, uh, somebody allegedly saw her there at 3.30. We'll just, uh, once again, we'll talk about that a little later. So sometime sure. after that, yes. something happens, and then this deputy goes out there. You know, sometime in the evening, we have to remember this is September, maybe sunsets like uh, 7.30 or maybe even earlier than that. Not time it'd be about 8, 8 o'clock in the evening. It would just start to get dark. Okay, so maybe hopefully so the, was, the sheriff gets out, the deputy gets out there uh, before it gets dark and he sees the car and he, he said it looked like a struggle. Can you uh, maybe ex uh, elaborate that on that a little bit more? Well, right. First of all, finished her work because we looked at the log books and she was getting ready to leave and she had opened the locked gate and uh, so you pull up as a deputy and you see an unlocked substation that's, that's a no-no yeah. there's a car the doors are open tools and a work hat a hard hat and all this stuff is strewn all over the ground and there's nobody at the substation and it's obviously the car of an employee because they got BPA logo on their hat their helmet and they've got all the tools and there's no one there Hmm. So it's a red flag. You don't leave a substation unlocked. Right. Okay. So, yeah, that would be a very bad sign. And you had already stated uh, earlier uh, that we'll, we'll touch upon that now is that that was the the standard operating procedure back in 1987. But you're saying in the 21st century it's changed where they totally pull inside and lock the gate behind them? It's Yeah, I've heard that. I haven't never actually had it officially. I know that's. I'm certain that's what's happening now. They don't get out of these people there, and they call it in on their radio, and they say, hey, I've got mm -hmm. two guys milling around in front of the substation. I'm not getting out. You know, right. That kind of stuff goes on now, but nobody thought about it back then. Okay. I guess what I'm saying is you found the, the – right. So if something's going on. They lock the gate, and like you're saying, you know, the gate's <laughs> open or cars parked there. Uh, just maybe a little bit different between 1987 and 2020. Okay, so um, right. does the does the deputy like look around uh, or or anything, but or does he call it right in? What 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 is your understanding of what happens after that? I would, I don't know what he did. I don't know, but I'm sure I know the guy. I'm 
I'm sure he looked around and determined immediately there was a problem and immediately called back to dispatch and said, hey, this, this substation's unlocked. There's signs of a struggle. Uh, there's something going on. He would have called it in right away. Okay. So, <laughs> so the Heath shows up. She's not there. Things strewn around her helmet that she would be uh, wearing, uh, just probably because that's one of the rules I know from my PennDOT days, you know, wearing it uh, anytime you're on the job. And that's around, or tools are around, looks like a struggle. Um, the, way, the way you understand it, were, what did they do with the car? Did they tow it out? Did they do any forensics on it? Um, anything. I don't know. I do not know, and I know they talked about they couldn't find. They, at that time, there was no nobody had heard of DNA, and they didn't. They said they hadn't found any fingerprints. And they mm. allegedly. I mean, I'm sure they printed stuff, but I don't know. I can only be guessing. I don't know what they did with the car. I'm okay. sure they checked it. Okay, so we have to remember. So, um, so they'd go out and do this, and once again, you were you were not working there. You were working for the company, but it's a totally different area. And That's you didn't you didn't start way. you didn't start working on this personally until 23 years later, but um, so what is your understanding then for the next few days about uh, did they talk to her husband did they uh, what anything uh, substantial or what did they think I mean obviously something happened it looked like there was a fight or something but that was about it. Right. We have no way of knowing. We didn't hear about the disappearance until the next working day, and it just sent shockwaves. But we have no way of knowing what's going on in Spokane. It's quite a ways away from Vancouver, Portland. Right. It's a six-hour drive. Right. We have no idea what's going on. We just heard Julie disappear. Okay. we were all really upset. I bet you were. And so let's talk about that. When the people in your department in Vancouver, Washington – of course, there's a Vancouver, Canada as well, but this is Vancouver, Washington – um yes. found out about this uh what was everybody's reaction uh what did you know you um people talk amongst the yourselves I, i'm guessing there was more than just you who knew julie what did everybody have to say yeah, everybody was devastated and uh, a lot of her female friends were over in the headquarters bpa building in portland so they i'm sure they talked about it, it was our only topic of coffee, you know, what happened to Julie? What have they found? Have you heard anything? You know, that kind of stuff. But uh, a lot of her female friends at Bonneville worked over at the main building, and they helped me. They helped out on the case, too. Okay. And once again, you were just a, a regular employee. You were not an investigator yet. At that time, in 1987, did, um, did management or anybody keep employees abreast of – anything that was being done in the investigation of Julie's disappearance, or was this kind of a situation uh, yeah. where, like, a month later, nobody was talking about it? No, they kept bulletins out. Uh, we get bulletins on it. And then it also came out in the employee-ran employee newsletter, and then BPA offered a reward. And BPA has a whole security division. And, the, by the way, the head of the security division is a retired Army colonel. He's my deputy head in my investigating team. Mm-hmm. So anyway, they were working on it night and day, and they, of course, can't tell you what they're doing. But no, BPA kept uh, us abreast with bulletins, and then they came out with a reward for any information. Okay. So and at that time – before. So at that time in 1987, uh, at the, once again, 87 into 88, 88, 
any suspects at all? Did anybody say, well, maybe her husband, of course, you don't, didn't know what was going on with the police, but maybe her husband did it. Uh, you know, did she have some other guy on the side? Any suspects, names or otherwise, come up during those, you know, that those first few months after she disappeared? Uh, I would have no way of knowing, but I developed my suspect list during and after 2011. Right. Okay. But I have no idea. They wouldn't tell us. They wouldn't typically brief us about the case confidential. Okay. So there's no way we would know. Okay, so uh, this newsletter employees uh, kind of kept this going, but I'm guessing at some point um, people did move on. There wasn't really much to talk about. Here she's missing. Um, you know, of course, without in 1987, there's no DNA. Um, maybe they get, got some fingerprints or something, but you, at, the, at least at the time, don't know anything about that. The police aren't going to say anything. There's no cell phone records because there were no cell phones. And people kind of eventually, I guess, just went on with their lives. I understand later, I mean, after I investigated in 2011, a whole bunch of people, like 100 people got together, and for a few days they searched every day in the area of the substation. Okay. Then it got to where they would search on weekends, and pretty soon it died out after a year. Yeah. And this is in addition to whatever the sheriff's doing. Right. Back then, searching was – now searches are all ran by law enforcement. Everybody has to be certified. You just can't go out there as a yahoo and say, hey, I've got to look around here. No, you're not. You have to be trained. Mm -hmm. We go through two years of training before we're certified to be field operators. Okay. So now it's different. But at the time, all our friends got together, and the sheriff said, oh, yeah, I, I don't know that. I can't say that. But people were searching without authority to search. All around that substation area. Right. All right. And once again, for the listeners – that would be the uh, Y intersection at Four Mound and Cooley Height Road. And once again, uh, Correct. At, at this point, you will be able to find maps on YouTube, on Facebook, and, and, on, and on Instagram. I will right. put, those, put those out there. Yeah, it's a, kind of a semi, not a major road, but it's not mm -hmm. a minor road. It's a paved mm -hmm. road that gets a lot of traffic for people going home that way. You know, and like I say, if the car, I'll explain why I know a car minute was going mm -hmm. by the substation. Uh, being that that substation, being that you've been there now for several times, um, what's the closest house to where that substation is? How far away? Right next to it, there's a driveway on the uh, east side of the substation that goes up to a guy's house. There's other houses. There's two or three or four houses that could see the substation. It's right in, the, mm -hmm. in a flat level area, and then down the road back towards Spokane, about a half a mile on the opposite side of the road, is like youth camp there was nobody at it but uh, mm. there was buildings that could you could see from the substation but in some places you could see a mile or two you know it's like a, a thin pine forest and flat ground and if you look at pictures of the sub you could see quite a ways okay would you say the closest Nothing house was uh, 500 feet away a thousand feet away what would you say certainly a thousand or less you know all right so less than a quarter a couple different directions okay yeah so if she got abducted by somebody, somebody was taking a chance that somebody might actually witness it, I guess we could say it that way. It, you know, This wasn't out in the middle of yes. nowhere. There were houses right there. Okay. Um, uh, her husband, uh, like we've already talked about, was investigated. They determined that he was uh, 50 miles away on a job, and um, so he was ruled out. And you know, as well, he, he wouldn't even know. He would not even know she was there. 
five minutes before she left, no one, but nobody in the world knew she was going out to that substation. Okay, right. Because her supervisor knew it. Right, because this After was kind said, of. I'll go stop by. Right, because this was a uh, kind of a uh, last minute, last minute, last minute thing. Okay. Yep. All right. Yep. So this uh, happens. Uh, you continue to work at the BPA. Things kind of. Uh, Quiet back down, I guess you could say. It uh, doesn't seem, at least from a public standpoint, that there's a lot going on under disappearance. Not a lot of new information out there, as happens in many, many disappearances all over the United States and the few that we cover in Canada. Let's move up to 2010. You've already stated that you worked on a disappearance uh, in which uh, you solved it, which is fantastic. Um, but you're not going to get into any names, which I totally understand. Um, what no, brought I you? I can tell you about it. How I I can tell you how I solved it. If that's it. Well, we're not. I don't know if we want to get into. It certainly would might be sure. interesting for another time. But we'll just say that you worked on this other yeah, disappearance sure. and uh, was very successful with that. Um, when did you retire from the BPA? Uh, Ninety-four with uh, thirty-year service, and then I did other careers. I had a couple of careers since then. Right, and you said I'm that you're still, still teaching. Yeah, and you said you're still teaching school at 77. That's great, John. Right. Okay. Yep. okay. Teach math and science. Okay, great. All right, so we move up to 2010, uh, and there was this other disappearance, and you decided to get involved uh, with Julie's. Was that an easy decision to make, or had this been something that you were thinking about for a long time? How would you explain it? Well, I, I uh, I said, boy, that was, you know, I solved the case in a day, and I said, boy, that was easy to solve if you just look at the facts and put things together and think logically and use engineering and physics. I solved it with engineering and physics. I found that that's how I solved that case, and I thought, this isn't rocket science. You know, I've been trained in investigative techniques at the sheriff's office for two years, good training, and I said, you know, I just, I just think there's more out there to this. I think we can do some more. So in 2011, I actually formed my first team, and two of us went up to Spokane to investigate for three days. All right. These people on your team, did they think you were crazy, or were they eager to help? How would you portray their attitudes at this point? Oh, yeah, they all think I'm crazy. No, at this time, <laughs> I was only one other person, but uh, and he was a friend of mine from Search and Rescue. He's now off in the Navy, uh, serving and doing well, but... Uh, he had thought about it, too, because he had been a law enforcement explorer. And I said, no way am I going to go up and nose around someplace by myself. So I always wanted somebody with me just for safety mm -hmm. and just for backup as to what, what did somebody say. Well, that isn't true. So this gentle kid guy went with me. He was 21. And we went up there for three days in um, the spring of 2011. All right, well, and we got permission from I. Yeah, let's talk, about, let's talk about that. What did you do when you went up there? Well, first off, we did a cut our ducks in a row, and I'd called uh, the the new owner of Spring Hill Sub. It was a Bonneville Power Sub. It was now owned by Inland Power. I called them up, told them what I was doing, and I said, do we have your permission to be on the site? They said, absolutely, go up there and look. So we drove up there, and the first thing we did is we drove out to the site. And was just and We videoed it. It was really interesting going out there. You know, rural farmland, few trees. And we got out to the substation. We were amazed that it's hot, right in plain sight. So we had brought our camping gear. We actually camped overnight at the substation, and we got our we counted cars going by the substation, and that's where I came up with. There was about a car a minute going by when we were there, 
Of course, 20 years earlier, there wouldn't have been quite as much development, so there might have been a car every minute and a half. And that clicked with me. I said, this is not totally isolated. Mm -hmm. I said, they have no witness to anything. I said, somebody saw something. And that turned out to be true. I came up with, by the time this was 10 years had gone, I had eight, six people that saw things. And the way we developed that is we passed out 100 flyers within a five-mile radius of the substation the same day we camped at it. And we got back to date. I've gotten 58 tips called to me. Wow. Okay. Based on I want to. I want to go through. That's that's yeah, a ahead. that's a first. Uh, that's the first I can think of somebody going about it the way you did it. You actually went door to door. Of course, the flyers maybe are not uncommon, but you actually had them, you know, some sort of um, questionnaire or something. Or, or... We had a flyer we made up, and it was based on the BPA flyer. And we had a reward offer, and I had my phone number on it, and as well as I believe we had the. Uh, tip line too, but I got a lot of calls. I got people that called me that said they wouldn't call the sheriff's office. They wanted to talk to a person that wasn't with them. And that's just not, that's none of my business, but I had a lot of people call me and said, you're the first person I've talked to. Okay. So we got, uh, how far did, if I can ask you, so how many, how many flyers to how many different houses and how, how far did you go in each direction? A mile, two miles? What would you say? We printed 100 flyers, and we went two to three miles in each direction all the way around the substation, even to the north of it, which you have to go a loop up another road. Mm -hmm. We passed flyers out, so we passed 100 flyers out, and we got back 15, 20 tips within the first few days. Okay. We were up there three days, but... Please. And then um, we'd already prearranged... We told KREM Channel 2 Television that we're going to be up there at the substation. And that second day, we camped out overnight. They sent an, uh, a crew up there and videoed us at the substation, and we showed them that we had found something. We actually did a search. We went up the hill because we had, by then we'd gotten a couple of tips in that said, oh, there's a cabin up above the substation. Maybe somebody took her there, blah, blah, blah. So we went up there, and we found a bone. It turned out to be a deer bone, and uh, it was not part of the case. But mm-hmm. we videoed it on TV to get effect, and uh, – this video interview is still coming back, and that's where I got my big break in the case two years ago with somebody that saw a rerun of it. So they videoed us, interviewed us, and it was on KREM Channel 2 News okay. that night or the next day. And that's been a right. boost to uh, getting tips in. Sure. That plus the flyers. Sure. Let's talk about the tips that you got. I'm, I, you, of course, sent me, and listeners should know, I've had uh, John sent me a packet. Uh, I looked at the date of the packet on the mailing. I still have the actual envelope with all the information in it. You, you sent that to me in July of 2017, but I know that we had been talking well before you sent me that package. But in that package, you had actually, you know, um, diagrammed the tips. You know, number one, you know, number one, number two, number three. And I don't know if we yeah, want to get into it to that extent. Yeah. But what would you say were the overall? feeling uh, statements in the tips that you got, those at least those first ones? Well, without going into suspect names, and by the way, I developed a list of 17 mm-hmm. suspects mm-hmm. for the first couple, three years. Um, surprisingly, I, we, I had never heard of anybody as a suspect when I went up there. And before the three days were up, we had one suspect that got more hits than uh, maybe half a dozen people told me, well, this guy did it, this guy, I'm not going to say who yet. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, we think he he did it, and he lives up there around the corner from the substation, blah, blah, blah. So he became a person of interest right away, and uh, things de- 
developed from there. But mm -hmm. uh, all of a sudden, I got – I said, this is too much out in the open. She was there for too long. Somebody had to see her. And as it turned out, six people have given me tips that they saw her there or saw the abduction take place. And some of the tips are what the most important tip only came in last year, the summer of 2018. So I always felt that somebody saw something but just didn't know what they saw, you know, mm -hmm. just like the Kennedy assassination. Somebody saw somebody funny carrying a suitcase somewhere, you know. Mm -hmm. They just didn't know it. And so that uh, video interview really brought things out. Okay. And I got six tips from six people who saw something there. And any idea uh, – we're going to mention his name in a moment, um, and a lot of people probably by this time might have uh, even looked it up, but uh, even though his name is really not out there. But uh, was yes. there a reason these people gave you these tips? Was there a reason that these people picked out this one guy in particular? Did they give you a reason, or did they just say, look at him, but did they give you yes. a reason, a why? Three or four reasons. One is a couple of people said – they they knew each other and that she had been bothered by the guy. Mm -hmm. And a couple of three of the neighbors said, we know this guy. He's really weird. He's up there on a survivalist camp. He would be the type of person to do it without saying that I, I that she knew Julie or anything. Mm -hmm. So uh, they had trouble with the guy and uh, kind of a survivalist type. And uh, he said he's mm -hmm. awfully close to the substation. It's a few miles away, and it's around the corner. And... Uh, he could have been going by and spot, nobody spotted Julie because nobody knew she was there. Her supervisor yeah. didn't leave and follow her or anything. So somebody spotted her, and they had to have a really good reason to attack a substation operator with heavy equipment and electrical stuff around. It wasn't just random. I, don't, I never did believe it was random. Mm -hmm. They said, well, this guy knew her, and he was around the corner from the substation. He spotted her. And that okay. was what – that was one theory that was – and it sounds pretty good to me, but I can't nope. prove that. But okay, but – what you're saying, these tips, these, these people didn't know, though, they didn't know Julie, so they couldn't have known that this guy knew Julie, but they just thought this guy was kind of suspicious. One of them well, one of them knew Julie and knew something about it, yeah. But, okay. And later on, more came out that knew of, that told me there was contact between the two, unwanted contact. But uh, by the time the three days were up, I probably had five or six tips naming this guy and one or two tips naming other people you know they need some mm. person of interest suspicious okay and we're uh, going to get to like him. I, said, I got 57 yeah okay we'll we'll get to him and we'll get to him in a second but you also um interviewed uh you interviewed people near the substation like you said the flyers but um you also had interviewed and talked with former BPA employees correct you also had an investigative what? reporter involved etc Yes, right. Uh, two investigative reporters with this local newspaper, the Spokesman Review, have been very helpful. I'll give you their names when I give credit to people. Okay. The big thing was I already had it arranged on day two after we left camping out at the substation to go to Bell Substation. And uh, they already knew I was coming, and they let me in because I was a uh, uh, at that time I was a retired – this is 2011. Uh, but I'm a retired BPA person. They let me in, but they wouldn't let my partner in because he wasn't BPA – uh, former BPA. So I actually went in and got ushered into the substation operator uh, offices and the, the substation offices are right at the substation. You walk out the door and you're going to be tripping breakers. So I'm interviewing the two guys there and they knew all about it. They were upset about it. 
And they said, well, still not solved. And I said, well, so we, I interviewed him for about an hour. We went over and I gave him flyers. And I said, well, I'm going to take off now. And the guy stops me and says, um, are you going back to Portland? I said, well, yeah, yeah. Can you, uh, can you take Julie's stuff to her family? I said, stuff? What are you talking about? What stuff? And he points over and said, there's her locker. It's still locked. It's never been opened. Oh and I said, what? You had never searched her locker? She was abducted while working at a BPA site. Didn't they come to the substation? He says, well, I think they did. I think they talked to a couple of people. Did they look in her locker? No. So I reported that, and it got searched by the sheriff and the FBI. This was in 2011. And we don't know what they found, but the locker had never been searched. It's a newspaper article mm-hmm. in the Spokesman Review newspaper. The title of it is, Work Locker Never Searched, or Locker Never Searched. And the facts mm-hmm. are in there. It's about a full-page article on it. Right, and by the time, once but again, no by the idea. time... Uh, everybody hears our voice on what will be uh, May 22nd. Um, I will have linked to those articles, and I actually probably post some pictures of the, the stuff that that you sent me as well. So listeners will know about if maps. If you can't find them, I can. Yeah. yeah. If you can't find them, I can take a picture of them and text them to you. Okay. But it's I, in the Spokesman Review. It's called Locker Never Searched. It's right there. All right. That's an incredible story. So once again, she had a locker, as I'm sure all employees uh, did. Maybe they had. Um, uh, you know, different work clothes, things like that, that they kept in their lockers. And you're saying for 24 years that Julie's locker was never opened. That's correct. Oh my gosh, that is that is a crazy story. I remember when you uh, first told me about that, and, and still, even uh, three years later, uh, it's still uh, a crazy thing that it is a little hard to believe. What is your understanding? Were people just like walking by it? Uh, was it? I, I, you know, it's almost hard to understand well, what would be going through a person's so. mind. Do you, do you even know what they were thinking? Just the employees, like, hey, what's this locker doing still locked? I would have no idea. But normally, when uh, time goes on, you forget about things. I mean, the first day there's a locker. Nobody thought they were, they were being interviewed by police. I'm sure nobody thought to say there's a locker. You know, nobody mentioned it. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, years have gone by, and there's a locker still locked, and nobody had authority to cut it open, and nobody thought about it. You know, mm-hmm. that's my guess. Okay. That just be supposition. All right, that is crazy. And I should I should ask this earlier, but being that we are talking about this locker and everything, being that she was working for BPA as a federal um, company or federal conglomerate or something. Federal employee. Okay. Right. Was the FBI involved in this investigation at at all? Yes, they were. They originally stepped in because it is. It was a federal worker uh, met, har- met harm at a federal op- federal center on federal property. And normally today that would, would definitely be an FBI case. The FBI case number is uh, 7SD1074. And if you don't know what that means, we had to look it up. A 7 is a kidnapping and SE is out of the Seattle office. And we're guessing, guessing the 1074 meant the 10,074th uh, kidnapping they've looked at. Wow. Right away, the sheriff was out there first because they responded out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, right away, it was kind of determined that we think she was abducted because she was a girl, not because she was a federal worker. Therefore, it becomes a uh, a case for the Spokane Sheriff's Office. I see. But I there's see. still a an FBI case number assigned to the case. Would you say that and once that was determined, would you say the FBI then kind of just backed off? They moved on to other things? I don't know. Okay. I'd have to guess, yes, but All I don't right, know but, that. But I guess what I'm saying is 
primarily over the last 33 years, it's been the county sheriff who has had the authority in this and not the FBI, even though the FBI did have a reason to at least look at it. To at least look at it. Right. That's correct. That's correct. Okay. Thank you. All right. um, We're getting to that moment. You said you had these tips. Uh, There were three. I think you said three primary, primarily from these three names that came primarily from these um, tips, these flyers, everything that you got back. Um, That grew to 17. The list grew to 17 suspects. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so wow, that's a okay, that's a lot of suspects. But uh, you know, once again, in going through everything that you sent me back from 2017, it does seem though you kind of narrowed it down to three. Or, or is that, right, is, is, and then and pretty soon we narrowed it down to one, and then mm-hmm. more and more came in, and we we just stayed with the one suspect. I truly believe that's the perpetrator. Okay, based on the evidence I got in. Okay, well we're going to name him right now, and Our, I want the listeners to know that. Uh, the main reason that John and I uh, waited so long to do this interview, even though we've known each other for like three years now, over three years, is because uh, this man that we're about to name uh, was known as being um, litigious, is probably a good word, uh, and, and he was um, – anytime his name would come up in relation to Julie's disappearance, um, he would cause problems for people, even the uh, sheriff's office, in which he got a settlement from them, and – and because of that, of course, John was very hesitant to uh, come on the program, but I will just give this away now that this man died earlier this year uh, from choking to death while eating his, in his car, correct? John, is that how he – Yeah, truck. In his truck. He yeah, his truck, choked yeah. to death while eating in his truck. And he crashed his truck. The truck. And he crashed his truck uh, back in January of 2020. Well, now that he is deceased – uh, we can now talk about him, but, but once again, we are only going to talk about him in factual form. We're not going after him. We're just going to talk about the information that John gathered uh, in his investigation over the last 10 years. We're going to talk about some things that uh, Will's relationship with the Sheriff's Department, uh, et cetera. We are not going after him, but uh, we're just going to talk about the information that John got. What is this man's name, John? Uh or Billy Parks, however, and he's well known up there in the area. A lot of people are afraid of Won't him. You, and, uh, you know, you kind of went out that you kind of went out there for a second, John. Why don't you say it again, please? Okay, Will Will Park Will Parks or Billy Parks. However, okay. we've got we tracked him back to uh, Tennessee, which he apparently left sometime in the seventies and changed his name. He was Billy Powell in Tennessee, like Powell Butte or Powell. And that some people have spelled it vowel, but uh, he apparently, according to a couple of tips I got, left Tennessee and changed his name from Billy Powell or Billy Powell. Uh, part, uh, Willie, excuse me, let me just slow down. Billy Powell or Billy Vowell, we think it was Powell, okay. to Billy Parks. It makes sense because it's the same first letter of the last name. Right. We so, don't know why he left or why he changed his name. Okay, let me just uh, spell that no out. Idea. So you have a reason to believe that when he um, was in Tennessee, maybe born there, his last name was P-O-W-E-L-L, or V as in Victor, wow. o- yeah, V-O-W-E-L-L. And then once he moved to Washington, uh, his he changed his last name to Parks, P as in Paul, A-R-K-S. That's what I that's what I think based okay. on what people have told me. I don't have anything in writing to prove that. Okay. I just have several different tipsters who don't know each other telling me that. Okay. Well, for 
the contents, uh, context of this continuing conversation, we're just going to use his name that he was using when he was when he died. His name was uh, Will, Will Parks. And when was the first time you ever heard his name? I heard it before we left us on our before we left Spokane when we were there for our three day investigation in 2011. And I actually heard it from one of the tipsters who I when I was passing flyers out. About five percent of the people were there, so I ended up talking to five or ten people. And this gal lived right down the street. And she says, "I right away I know who it is. It's this guy, Powell Parks, brother." Okay. She told me, and I said, "Whoa!" So he was actually the first tip I ever got in a name. And there's 17 people that I suspected okay. or looked at. All right, so I can't tell you who they are. I can tell you who two of them are, but okay, most of them are innocent. I'm not going to give out their names. Okay, so this is this Will Parks was the name that came up predominantly, prominently when you were up there for those three days. Correct. Okay, so um, did you, in getting his name, did you ever attempt to go talk to him about it? Absolutely not. No. No. We found out where he lived, and I said, God, that's right around the corner from the substation, basically. I mean, maybe five, six miles. Yeah. He, um, he was mentioned. Uh, do you think that the reason that these people mentioned Will Parks, do you think that they had any animosity to him? Were they just picking on him? You know, was he just like a bad neighbor? Is that the reason they picked him out, or was it something else? Yeah, I, th I think it's both. I think a couple of people were really uh, had problems with him, and they, you know, You'll turn in your bad neighbor. I think that was part of it, but I also think they genuinely believed he could have been involved. Okay. Now let's get to the, the of the two. Yeah, let's get to the very uh, most important part of this. Did Will Parks, once again, in your investigation over the last ten years, is there reason to believe that Will Parks knew Julie Wefflin? Yes. And I had a number of people tell me that, and I have firsthand knowledge of two of those. All right, let's. You want me to tell you about those? Absolutely, let's, let's let's hear it. Okay, another investigator and I went out and interviewed Julie, Julie's stepmom, and she was just still distraught over it, and uh, she had married Julie's dad, and uh, she pulled out her diary and showed us on page twenty-three of her diary there was an entry that Julie feared this guy Will Parks had been bothering her, and I have that dated. I tell you exactly when. I don't have it in front of me, but I have the date of that. And then the second thing was, uh, in investigating, the word got out around BTA, et cetera, that I was working on it. And a uh, gentleman, um, Bill, let me think, uh, I'll think of his name. Anyway, her supervisor, long retired, called me up, and I have it all all, uh, all uh, documented exactly the hour and day that I talked to him. And he said, Julie confided me over and over again that this guy, Will Parks, was bothering her. And she got him. He said she got him kicked out of a club, a, a, a famous outdoor club in the area. I can't mention the name. Yeah, we don't want to do that. Her there. No. Okay, so uh, let's go back to the diary for a second. So, when did you uh, see this diary? What year was it? Uh, I'd have to look that up in my file, but it'd be um, a couple. It'd be around 2012. I can look it up and tell you exactly when it was. That's, uh, that's good enough. Uh, we're just trying to determine this was in the recent yeah. past. This was not. Uh, this yeah. was after you started investigating this uh, with help right. from others, okay, in 2011. Okay, so sometime after you were up there for those three days is when you had an opportunity to go to Julie's, was it her stepmother's? Stepmother? Her stepmother, and I still keep in contact. And uh, Okay. Uh, she's elderly now, and uh, mm -hmm. but anyway, I got... 
those two different uh, people have said, and I saw it in writing, that Julie knew uh, this guy and was afraid of him. All right, so I just, I'm going to ask you point blank. So she shows you uh, Julie's diary. How did she get Julie's diary? Did she just like, go get her stuff after no, it, Julie? It, uh, okay, no, it was her diary, and Julie had put an entry in it. It was the stepmom's oh, diary, oh. and she wrote the entry on page 23 of the diary. Wow. So it wasn't Julie's diary. Okay, all right, so it was the stepmother's diary, and Julie wrote in it, and was there a date that Julie – do you remember if there – you know, people usually date – I'm not a journal taker but or a journal writer, but some people – most people do do it by date. Was there a date that you know that, that Julie wrote that in that diary? No, and that was a big mistake. At the time, we didn't have cell phones that had cameras built in them, or I would have taken a photo of it, mm-hmm. and I didn't do that, And uh, but I, I and another person witnessed that being in print on page 23. Of the stepmom's diary, but no, we didn't get a photo of it or get a copy of it. All right, so uh, so can you paraphrase exactly what Julie wrote in her mother's diary? Well, I don't know whether Julie wrote it or a stepmom. It mm-hmm. said Julie is afraid of this guy Will Parks. He's been bothering her. And, okay. Uh, okay. I asked the stepmom if she'd showed it to the police. She said nobody's ever contacted me. So because she lives in Portland mm-hmm. and the case is up in Spokane, so why would somebody contact her stepmom? You know. Right. I don't know that. Okay, but, uh, so no. we we can uh, just do a theorizing for just a moment that Julie and her stepmother at some time between, before September 1987 are on the phone, and Julie tells her stepmother, yep. man, there's this guy I know. His name's Will Parks. He just will not leave me alone. We can theorize. Right. Of course, Julie's married. Right, right, right. But we can theorize that that's maybe how it could have happened, maybe. Yeah, that'd be a theory. That I would can't be a say theory. For okay. sure, but All right, so that's why that might have happened. Okay. Julie was still close to her stepmom because her dad had passed away and her stepmom had remarried. Right. Okay. So uh, in this diary, you saw what yeah. Julie's stepmother had written that um, that Will Parks was bothering Julie, and then after that, let's go through that again. You said that somebody else called you up. And it had something to do with Julie yeah. and Will being in the same club. We're not going to mention the club because it still exists to this right. day. And We're not here to tarnish it. Yeah. Right. He's Julie's direct supervisor, William Falk. And he was long retired and pretty old. And he said that she told me over and over again this guy, Will Parks, was bothering her. Again, that's hearsay, but I heard mm-hmm. it. I'm not going to Okay. Um, he told me that over and over. Did he even know – did this guy, when he called you, did he even know that you were even thinking about Will Parks? Uh, no. I don't know that he knew I was already had Will Parks on my list. Okay. He brought it up. Uh, okay. But I'd already heard the name before. Okay. And things starting to gel. I'm starting to hear – why am I hearing the same name over and over again from different people that don't know each other? Mm-hmm. There okay. might be something to it. So yeah, well, that. we will get into a little bit later why it might have been on some people's uh, minds, but uh, being that his name came up, you know, but uh, and it might have been a little bit of uh, I have to make confirmation bias, but we'll get to that when when we do. So uh, you you read about Will Parks in this diary. Um, this other guy tells you that uh, Will and Julie might have been in this club. Together, it's just let's just call it an outdoors club, and Correct. that there is a belief out there that that 
maybe because Will was harassing Julie that Julie got him kicked out of the club. That's what another person told me, but not okay. this gentleman, not the supervisor. Okay. By the time, by the time William Falk called me, he was very old and he'd been retired 20 years, you know. Mm-hmm. But he still thought about Julie because she was his uh, employee at the time. She, he was her direct supervisor. Okay. So let's just talk about Will Parks a little uh, more. Um, uh, from Tennessee, might have changed his name. Uh, how old would he have been just off the top of your head? I think he was 68 when he died earlier this year. So he would have been approximately 23, 45. No, he'd be, 45. He'd be when, when what happened? When the, when the disappearance happened? Yeah, when, the disappearance, when the disappearance happened in 1987, how old would he have been? 33 from 68 to 65, 55, 45, 35. 35. Anything my, in his 30s. All right. My my addition is not good. Okay. So he would have been. take away 30 is. Yeah. Yeah. No, 34, 35. Okay. And you stated that uh, he lived how many miles from where Julie uh, was abducted? I'd have to measure it out. It would be maybe two or three miles as the crow flies and maybe eight miles by road. I actually drove it because by that time, one of, one of my tipsters, one of the people I talked to passing out flyers, told me the address and where it was at. So we drove by it on a main road and never turned in his driveway. Mm-hmm. So we drove from the substation west, took the first turn to the north, put us on Pine Bluff Road and came around to his place. And it might have been five or six miles. Okay. And do you think, once again, now that you have this new this possible connection between Will and Julie, do you think she knew that he lived right down the street from where she was going that day? I have no idea. No idea. Okay. Um, yeah. What kind of what kind of work does Will do? What, what's what's his story? What did what did he do with his life until he died earlier this well, year? We. It's all. Well, I've heard it from several people. He had a. Uh, he owned a company called Adventure Dynamics, and he gave he trained people in survival. And actually, one of my tipsters is a, a female lieutenant colonel of the U.S. Army. I'm not going to give her name out. She called me up this last year and said, I was one of the ROTC instructors at Gonzaga, and we used Will Parks for uh, training, but I got a really bad feeling about the guy, and I would not let female cadets go out there alone to his place. I had to be with them. And she mm-hmm. called me because she saw I was investigating him, and she wanted to tell me that. And, of course, I got her name and a phone number and everything, and the exact, exact time and date that I talked to her. Everything I've got is documented. I, I know. I, I know, I, I I know I that. I know that. You, I, I know I got the, the packet. I know you have even more information than that, but I still have every single piece of information you sent me three years ago. Yes, you do document everything. Right. Great. I've got about ten new – yeah, I've got ten new tips since then. Okay. The one is, is stellar. Okay. So I've um, also looked up um, his business. I believe the business is now closed now that he's deceased. It was closed before then. I think he closed it a year or two ago. Okay. And this is a situation where people go out there and, uh, like you said, I wouldn't call it like a – it's like supposed to be team building, like maybe businesses send their employees there. They do that kind of thing? Yes, some of that. That's what it appeared to be, yes. And, and survival techniques and shooting and uh, mm. camping and uh, how to survive in the wilderness, that kind of stuff. Okay. And team building, of course, is part of it. All right. And I also noticed that, you know, in looking into the business, uh, no matter what we may think about Will, it does seem that it got a lot of good reviews. People liked it. It had a very good, uh, I think, Yelp rating 
or whatever they call it on uh, a lot of stars on Google. So at least okay, that's, I don't know about that. Yeah, I, I actually looked that up. So um, okay. like like four and a half out of five stars. So it seems that was his business. Do you know if he was doing that business at the time of Julie's disappearance in 1987? I have no way of knowing that. No idea. Okay. Was he married? No Did he have any children? As my recollection is he's was never been he's never been married until just lately. But I've had heard from a couple of three people, including a couple of ex girlfriends, that they dated Parks, and none of them stayed with him. But uh, okay. and I've got those all documented, and uh, that's another avenue. You know, there's right. talk to ex exes out of somebody's life, and you find out a lot. Right, and, right, and we've of course talked about that. Uh, a lot on Unfound, uh, you speaking to ex-wives and, and things like that. Sometimes they are a good inform- source of information. You just kind of have to wonder sometimes: are they telling the truth, or are they just slandering, you know, the ex-husband or ex-boyfriend or whatever? But sure. okay, so you talk yeah. to to uh-huh. some of them. But I guess what I'm saying is, he was a reputable businessman. Uh, appears so. Okay. Now, here's the important part, and this is where I mentioned, um, you know, could there have been a little confirmation bias going on in some of these tips? And that's not your fault, but um, he had a run-in with the Sheriff's Department in 1999. Why did that happen? Well, I just found out about it. We knew about it originally because it's in one of my tips way back from my investigative reporter at the Spokesman Review newspaper. We thought it was relative to either the Julie Weflin or Deborah Swanson cases. And it's only been in the last week we found out that it was um, – a complaint was called into 911 and they dispatched officers out there. And they had uh, – they knew Will Parks had guns. I don't know whether they thought he was a threat or whether it was because he had had um, – it was a domestic call, and uh, they sent seven officers out. It's in the, it's, this is in the court records. They sent seven officers out in three vehicles, which is quite a lot. And we found out just within the last week that there was a domestic disturbance call is why they went out there. Nothing to do with the missing girl cases, okay. which I understand he was already a suspect with them by that time, you know. Okay. By 1999, that's clearly uh, that's clearly documented. Um, people have told me that that worked at the sheriff's office, but they went out there because of a call to 911. We need help. Okay, so 1999, there was uh, a woman who I guess was on was out there with Will Parks at his uh, place. I don't know that. We don't. They okay. won't tell us what the call was about, right. except it was a domestic Best disturbance. Okay. They won't tell them they responded. That's all they'll tell us. Okay, so that's why they so ended up going out there. But why was it then that eventually Will um, sued them and he actually got money from them? What, what, what was what was the general uh, facts of that?
Okay. And, uh, it's public information. You yeah. can look this up, and it's, uh, there were a lot of stipulations in there that Will could never go after, go after these deputies individually or do this. And, uh, and it's all just right there in the grant. It's nothing that I'm making up. Okay. Do you think, um, once again, you had not heard about Will Parks' name until 2011 when you put those flyers out there and some of his neighbors, they're not necessarily next-door neighbors, but neighbors in the substation area kind of pointed the figure at him. But in 1999, uh, you just said that he might have already been a suspect in Julie's disappearance. Uh, do you have any reason to believe that, and what do you think you know, might have caused that? I have that. reason to believe that. Yes, I do. I have reason to believe that from about 10 different sources. Do you want me to start naming yeah, them? Yeah, well, yeah, please. Well, I'd, I'd certainly like to know how Law enforcement, you know, his name finally did come up, of course, well before you heard his name. What put them on to him? Yes, please. Okay, first of all, investigative reporters Bill Moreland and Jody Lawrence Turner both told me he was the lead suspect at the time. The detective in charge of the case in 1987 said he was one of the lead suspects, and he told us personally that he believes he's the right man that did it. And then we had... Uh, so he was a suspect that looked at in 1987. Wow. And that's all I can tell you. And it's, uh, mm. and then also the uh, the other deputy, which uh, I've talked to personally, drove down to Battleground to talk to me about the case, said that he was the suspect. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of these people don't want to be named. That's fine. Especially the two deputies. But I've got that. I've got it all documented. I have their names and phone numbers in my file. If I get subpoenaed, I can mm. prove it. But I'm not giving them out. Okay, that's fine. My my thing though is why did they look at him? Did you know what led them? Because once again, uh, at least the way we the public understand it, you show up, she's gone, everything's strewn, all, you know, across you know the substation ground there. You know, we don't know anything about fingerprints or anything else. What exactly would have pointed them in the direction of Will Parks? I have no idea. They they were never they never ever told you that they said he was a he no. was a suspect but they wouldn't tell you why. Correct. Do you, was that on? Do you think that's on purpose or what do you think? No, they have to keep things confidential. I mean, I was a deputy. They just don't give up that kind of stuff. Okay. But uh, if I found out that he'd been threatened, she was afraid of him and been threatening her. Somebody else could have found that out. Mm -hmm. It's not real hard to figure that out. I figured it out in two days. Right. Okay. So that's okay. all I can tell you. All right. Thank you. Do you think uh, when it comes back to – all right, so early on, even though, once again, the public, you working at the BPA, the coworkers and everything, never heard about any suspects, what you now know all these years later is that Will Parks' name actually did come up in late 1987. Yes. Okay. Uh, and it might even appear in news articles, and I don't know that, but uh, – Okay. Uh, just without going into a lot of detail, I had an open mind, and I have uh, – I'm not going to tell you who they all are, but I have, I have 17 suspects on my list. And one of them is the Green River Killer, mm -hmm. and one is Yates, the Spokane serial killer. He's in prison for life right on the death row, and he killed a bunch of girls, but we determined he didn't do it. My investigation determined that he probably wasn't responsible because it wasn't his M.O. He went after prostitutes and not working girls. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I want you to know I had 17 people on my list. They're still on my list of suspects. Several of them are deceased in prison, and um, and uh, there's other connections. But I, I okay. knew that some of them – I knew that 16 had to be innocent because they can't all be guilty. 
Right. Maybe at all 17 were innocent. That's but true. I don't think that way now. I think one of them's guilty. Right. Okay. Uh, going back to these flyers and these people who pointed these neighbors, who pointed the finger among a few different people, but it seems like Will Parks' name came up the most. Do you think it is possible that the reason they pointed the finger at him is because they knew that he had sued the police department back in 1999? Do you think maybe it had gotten through the grapevine, you know, as things sometimes do, that uh, he had been a suspect since 1987? No, they wouldn't have known that because – they would have known about it. They would have. They might have known about the 1999 lawsuit. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm assuming it might have been in the paper, but Probably. certainly in the court records I'm looking at right here. But I don't know if these people were that deeply into it. No, I don't think they knew that. Okay. Uh, just based on my last, almost all of my Will Parks tips came in before he passed away in January. Mm-hmm. I already right. I had one since then that, that was willing to give me, and a, a couple of people gave me a tip of something I didn't know. I guess what I'm saying is, as I mentioned, you know, could there have been a little bit of confirmation bias going on? And once again, not your fault, but, you know, you start asking people around a substation, you know, about Julie's disappearance, and maybe what comes to mind is, well, there was that, there is that Will Parks guy who sued the the police department in 99, and, you know, we heard it might have been over domestic disturbance, and, you know, maybe you should go look at him. You know, so they didn't really have any first night, you know, that's what I'm saying. No, nobody told me that because I heard about it was many years later, mm-hmm. a few years back after investigating for several years, that I heard from an investigative reporter. Oh, by the way, they arrested him in 1999, and they thought mm-hmm. it was because of the Wefflin or Swanson cases. Mm-hmm. And as it turned out, I just found out within the last week or so, it was because of another domestic disturbance call called into 911. It wasn't either of those cases. So my guess is. When they were out there searching his property, they weren't looking for bodies of those girls. They were looking for evidence in the case they were working on. And uh, okay, released parts five hours later. Okay, all right. I think I think we've uh, probably beaten that topic to the death. Okay, um, let's move on to this, and I'll ask you again. Uh, I, I know that you never did personally speak to Will Parks. Is the reason you never did that? Um, I'm asking because I'm get maybe from a public standpoint. You know, you're devoting all this time to uh, into this. I, I think that you take this investigation very personally. But being that his name comes up, you don't ever, you know, just go knock on his door and say, "Hey, Will, you know, I just thought you'd want to know what I'm doing. I have any comment on any of this?" I would, I would not contact him for two reasons. One, I investigate and I put facts together and present it to the. Uh, legal authorities, which in this case would be the sheriff's office, and I usually CC the FBI. So A, I don't contact suspects, and B, early on I found out this guy was really dangerous, and a lot of people feared him. There's no way. I I didn't contact any of my 17 suspects. Mm -hmm. But I just gather information and forward it on to the authorities. Okay. I'm not going to take action. I just ask for input, and then I gather, document it, and send it in. Okay. You say that he is dangerous. Uh, does he have a felony record? No, I was told. I don't know that. I just told I, people told me they feared the guy that he threatened them when she, they mentioned, "What did you do in this? Did you do something, Julie?" And he threatened, threatened them. And I got that in writing, but uh, I don't know of any criminal record. There's no way I could find it out. But I did write to uh, the four the four towns in Tennessee and say, "Hey, did you have a guy named Willie Powell?" That lived here and then disappeared because we think it's Willie Parks in, in Spokane. 
suspect in some cases here, and I never heard back from anybody. But I thought I thought that through, and I, I was able to find the four places that Billy Powell lived in Tennessee, and I sent letters mm-hmm. to each police agency. One came back undeliverable. I re-looked it up and found out they moved, and I resent it to them. And I never heard back from any of the agencies, and I wouldn't expect to. Last thing they're going to do is tell a citizen something. How did that but even I come did up? Make an attempt. How did how did that Pardon even me? come up that that his name might have been changed? How did how did you even come across uh, two that? Two people, a couple of my tipsters who don't know each other, both told me the same story. They told me the name, and one even thought they had. Uh, we might even have a court record showing it, but uh, I can't put my finger on it right now. But I heard it from two different tipsters, so uh, that was an odd thing to hear. You know, hmm. it's not something that somebody would easily make up. That, oh yeah, he yeah. left Tennessee and changed his name from Billy Powell to Billy Parks. Which you know, when people change their names, they keep a similar last name a lot of times because it's easier yeah. to remember. But I don't know that. I don't know if it's true. I just was told that. Okay. I have no way of knowing if it's true. But I wrote to the agencies and said, "Hey, this is what's going on here." And I rewrote to them again when Parks died. I said, "Hey, the guy's now deceased." I don't know if you have DNA in any of your cases. I don't know if there's DNA available. Nobody knew DNA back in the 70s. Right. Nobody had ever heard of it. Right. But I said, I okay. gave him the opportunity to, to know that this guy was out here and never heard back. Okay. Do you know if Will Parks <laughs> was uh, ever uh, given a polygraph test regarding Julie's disappearance, either in 87 up till any time, ever? Yes. Yes, I know he was polygraphed. Because and I, uh, uh, I got the name of the gentleman called me. He's one of my tipsters, and he's the one that called me back in January and said Parks is dead. He said that a his uh, his neighbor, a friend, is a polygrapher at the Spokane Police Department, and polygraphed Will Parks on another matter three or four years ago, and they stuck in three questions on the Loveland case, and he flunked all three of them. Hmm. And I can, if the authorities know this already, I gave him the guy's name. And this guy, okay. I don't know the name of the polygrapher. I just know the guy, name of the guy that called it in. Okay. All right. So yeah. He's one of my original tipsters. He's one of my original tipsters from 2011. Mm-hmm. And then he called in and said, "This is a, uh, after 2011. I don't know when. I'd have to look it up. I got this all documented. I can give you the date. But he called me uh, a few years, years back and said Parks was polygraphed and blunt three questions on the Wetland case." And he was being polygraphed on another matter. They don't know what that. I don't know what that matter was. But, okay. uh, All right. So we have that once again. Uh, polygraphs not 100% <laughs> accurate, um, and they are just a tool like anything else in trying to figure out uh, a crime. Of course, they are not um, cannot be used in court. But I, I thought I'd ask that. So that and, yep. and it's interesting to me. I have to admit, given what I think I know about Will Parks, that he. I'm a, I'm surprised he even offered to take a lie detector test. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy would do, that would do that. Well, I can't address that. Maybe it was on something he knew he was innocent of. But mm-hmm. uh, again, I've got the date, the time, and the phone number of the person who told me that. It's all hearsay. I did not see him take a polygraph. It's all hearsay. But I have no reason to doubt this guy. It was too detailed, and I've got his name and phone number. It'd be very easy for law enforcement to follow up on it if they already have it, which they, I'm sure they've done their job. I'm sure they've looked at it. Okay. Let, let's just be clear about this, though. Once again, this is – I think what we're talking about, this is a lot of circumstantial evidence. I'm, I'm, I'm not criticizing you or anything. That's mostly what we do talk about 
on Unfound, unfortunately, we, you know, in disappearances, we rarely have any DNA or blood or anything like that, any forensic evidence. A lot of it is just, uh, you know, social media and, you know, and phone calls and texts and that's in sightings and things like that. That's what we usually end up talking about because there is no body. Right. There is, we don't even know sometimes if these people are really deceased or not. But criminally, yeah. when it comes to evidence for a trial, is there any evidence? Uh, connecting Will to Julie's disappearance that you know of. Yes, and that didn't come to light until 2018. You know what I always said? My premise was, hey, this substation's out in, in plain view. There's cars going by. Somebody knows something. And, of course, I got six tips from six people, including a, an employee of another electric utility who drove by the substation at 3.30. Said, wow, look, there's a female substation operator. I've never filmed it. Never seen one before. Like he called me recently and said, locked in that time. But no, back in 2018, I get a call from a guy, and I'm just going to paraphrase it. He says, uh, are you John Polos? And I said, yeah. You're looking for the Weflin girl? I said, yeah, what's this about? He says, well, I just saw you on TV. So they obviously played a rerun of my KREN Channel 2 interview in 2011. He says, whoa, that's strange. Well, it's too bad. I didn't know she got abducted. I thought it was a domestic argument. I said, thought what was? He says, me and my two buddies were 13 years old. We were riding bicycles, and we got tired, and we pulled over across the street from the substation in the ditch there, and just sitting there, and we watched this guy drive up an abductor in a van. And I said, why didn't you call it in? He says, well, because they knew each other, and each other calling each other by names, so I figured it was her husband. So they didn't call it in. They went home. 13-year-old kids aren't watching news shows. It came out the next night in the news. They never saw it. It wasn't until he saw the TV interview in 2018 and a rerun that he called me. But he knew three things about the case that in person might not know, and I can't tell you what those are. I.e., you know, 100 people probably said they killed John F. Kennedy, but mm-hmm. they all had the wrong type of gun, you know. So anyway, he knew three things that made me believe that he was telling the truth. So I pass that on to both the FBI and the sheriff's office. Why did he wait? Did he not realize that Julie Wefflin was missing? That's correct. He didn't know about it. I mean, you're out in the country. You're not. You're a 13 year old kid. You're playing games. You're going fishing. Mm-hmm. And they might even, Who knows if they had a TV? But he didn't know about it until he saw me on TV on, on a rebroadcast in 2018. Uh, was this uh, being that he was riding his bike past here? I'm going to guess he lived in the vicinity of the substation. Was his house not one of the ones that you put a flyer on in 2011? I have no idea. That didn't come up. But uh, okay. I asked him if he could get a hold of his two buddies, and he said, "I've lost track of them. I don't know where they're at." But there were three of us there that saw the same thing. And so you passed this on to the FBI, you said, and and the county sheriff. Yeah, but it passed it on to the county a little later. I, 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 okay. I, uh, I passed it on to the FBI, and I got to talk to a special agent at the FBI in 2018. And I heard from him back again. And he says, and I can tell you, who, I can't tell you his name, but he's in mm-hmm. the FBI office in Spokane. Anybody in authority, anybody in a police agency, I'll give him his name and phone number. He said later that he interviewed the witness, and he says he's believable. But I got to tell you, John. This was not an FBI case. This was, uh, mm-hmm. was originally, but it's a Spokane Sheriff's case. So I interviewed him. I believe what he said was true, and I passed it on to the Sheriff's Office. Okay. 
uh, let's move on to this, being that we've talked so much about uh, Will Parks. Um, do you know, you know, over the years, once again, this is 1987, and he didn't die until 33 years later in 2020. Do you have any – do you know if uh, the sheriff's department ever once in a while went back to talk to him, or do you think that they were scared off after after that lawsuit from 1999? Well, most of their talking would have been way before 99. I know the original detective on the case talked to him in, right after the incident, but I don't uh, – because he, because he told us that. And, uh, and he developed evidence. He believed he was guilty, but uh, that's believing isn't proving. Again, and you'll see in the other two girls, none of these bodies have ever been found. There's sure. three similarities in all these cases. They're beautiful young girls. They have professional jobs, school teacher, nurse, substation operator. They were abducted and nothing, and never found again. Mm-hmm. So they're all real similar. Oh, yeah, and we're going to get to Deborah and Catherine here shortly. Sure. Now, of course, we've talked about Will Parks. He knew Julie. Sounds like he could have had a grudge against her. He lives very close to this area. We're not sure if Julie knew he lived near there or, or, or not. Uh, of course, we could visualize a scenario, but we really do not you know, get into theories on the program when we're not certainly trying to go after Will Parks, whether he is deceased or alive. But uh, I do have to ask you, John, is that in many places you will find that, it, at least at the time in 1987, law enforcement thought that this, this abduction uh, was committed by more than one person. Uh, can you rationalize that? We've only talked about Will Parks. Is there any proof that he could have had help, or does that kind of get in the way of thinking that Will Parks did this at all? Okay, thanks. That's a great question. Of all my 57 tipsters, and by the way, the key, my key thing has always been somebody saw something, they just don't know it. One of my six tipsters that went by the substation area or was in the area at the time is the only person who's ever said he thinks it was two people. He was driving a log truck, and he might not have even been near the substation. And he said, I saw a girl in a, struggling with two guys in a van going the other way, and I tried to turn my log truck around. I turned it around and chased them. I could never catch them. So I went back, picked up my wife, and went in and gave a statement to a sheriff's officer at a sheriff's substation. And that's the only person that's ever said to me they thought it was two people. Hmm. Okay, so what you're saying is it it very well could be that the reason that that this uh, has been written some places could be because of this one particular person. No, nobody knew about this person until he called me in 2011, unless he told somebody else. Okay. Uh, The first I'd heard about it was when he called me in 2011 and said, this is what I saw. I was driving a log truck, two people in a van with a girl fighting. Okay. And I don't know if that ever came out before. I have no way of knowing. Okay. Um, the way you went, of course, you were not there. Uh, we know that you weren't there uh, You know, to see the aftermath of this abduction, kidnapping, whatever you want to call it. Uh, do you, have you ever heard anything from law enforcement or people on the scene? I'm guessing maybe there were some other power people who were there as well. Anything that would have led them to believe that actually more than one person was, was involved? Or was this – Kind of just an inference. Uh, I never heard anything from anybody other than this one person that there were two involved. I've never heard anything. Okay. Never seen anything in print and stories ever. Okay. So you. So all right. So what we're saying maybe is that the, this uh, Julie's 
disappearance was caused by more than one person is maybe what we might call it a, mi a, min a minority theory. Correct. Okay. All right. Because uh, I guess what they're saying, there's not – it sounds to me there's no evidence of that. It very well may just be that they just took that for granted at the time, people who were working on it. So I guess what we're saying is even though people may read that out there, there's not necessarily any evidence uh, to support that. It, although it could have happened. We just don't know. If we knew what happened, we could just go solve right. it right now. Yeah, I don't know. I know. I don't know what I don't know. Okay, that's true. Okay. So, and would you say this is still, um, or maybe I need to ask you this. When you, um, how did you react when you found out that Will Parks died this past January? Well, I couldn't believe it because I'm still, I was afraid of the guy. I didn't want to deal with him. He threatened people. And I can give you, I can prove that he threatened a lot mm -hmm. of people because they got, got in writing. And he was the kind of guy that says, if you call me a killer, I'll kill you. You know, I mean, he was just a, a very scary person. And one of the investigative reporters said, this investigative reporter said that, that, that they didn't want to get near this guy. They, they feared for their life. Mm -hmm. So right away, I've heard that, you know, it's just hearsay. I've heard that from several different people. I did no way I ever wanted to meet the guy and go ask him, hey, did you kill Julie? You know? Mm -hmm. No. Okay. By the way, I want to make something really clear. Please. When I talked to the witness, witness in 2018 who called me up and saw the bicycle boy, who saw the abduction, yes. I never mentioned the name Will Parks, and I've never sent him photos of Will or anything because I don't want to taint the case. But when he described the person he saw, it sounded like what Will Parks would have looked like 30 years before. Okay. But I'm not going to go into details. That's one of the three things that made me believe this guy was telling the truth. Okay. He described the suspect as a young Will Parks. Okay. He's got a very interesting build and a very interesting face. He described it to a T. Okay. And, it's, my, uh, and it should be now. Writing. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, anyway, I, I document everything. I've got it in writing. I've got the time and date. I, he told me that. And I, I can't remember everything. I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. Yeah, I can remember. Mm -hmm. But when I put it down in writing, I never lie to myself. So if I got it in writing, it's true. I believe you. Uh, I, I, I think what we're saying here is um, that he's describing somebody who he had never – this witness who was 13 at the time uh, would have been describing he's to somebody he didn't even know existed. Correct. Okay. And it should be known, um, if you really, uh, for the listeners, if you really, really, up until today, if you really, 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 really looked hard, you might have been able to find Will Parks' name out there. But that's about the only way. It's it's, uh, it's, it's appeared in some articles. I've got, yeah. uh, I think I might even have some, but you can go Google. Mm -hmm. Google his name, I don't know. I've, uh, mm -hmm. I tried to find yeah. out more about him, and I tried to find out who... Never been able to be successful at that. Yeah. In the seventies, how what were records like? You know. Yeah. It's just uh, once again, I think because uh, of his reputation, and I think also maybe because this disappearance is thirty-three years old, that you know his name is not prominent out there. Unlike many other disappearances where uh, a suspect is known and they are taught this person is talked about freely on web sleuths and and other places or charlie project mm -hmm. 
but Will Parks, as far as prominent suspects go, once again, in my opinion, uh, and being a suspect in disappearance, his name has not been one of the ones that has been out there. Not, not under, you know, not. That's not my impression. Okay, so that is. Yeah, yeah. Um, being that he is now deceased, uh, who owns the property uh, that he lived on there, not far from the substation? I was told that his widow, the, his wife, he did get married. And I think that's as far as I know, he's only been married the one time. And she lives on the property. As far as I know, somebody told me that. They looked it up. They can look up the records, and that's just hearsay again. Mm-hmm. But I was told within the last two months that she lives on the property. Do you know of any attempts that or, the sheriff – Or at least, at least owns the property. She might not live on it, but she owns the property. Okay. Do you know of any attempts by the sheriff's office to – now that Will Parks is deceased, to try to get on that property to search it? I do. Okay. But I, not, I can't tell you about it. Okay. I, I can't tell you about uh, it, but I do know of it. Okay. I just have to ask There's you because – things that I've been asked not to talk about. Okay. Uh, I have to ask. But again, is, I have it documented. I have it. Uh, this officer told me this on this date at four thirty in the afternoon. I have it documented, but I'm not allowed to talk about that. Okay. Why? Well, because I have my job. I have to do this. Do you know if anybody has been on the property since Will Parks disappeared or Will, Will Parks died? I do not. Okay. All right. So we have Julie Westland. Uh Seems like we have a decent suspect, and we we have it seems more than one witness uh, that saw something happen there that day. I, I have to admit, John, I'm still a little puzzled why maybe they weren't taken more seriously, or why they didn't call 911 or something like that. But that's we're not going to theorize that, you know, in that I at that point. But yeah. uh, Will Parks uh, seemingly knew Julie. He lives not far away. It seems like they had a beef. We have this entry in the in the diary. You know, we have some decent circumstantial evidence. So let's move on to uh, another girl, another young woman. I don't want to call her a girl, but a young woman that um, has come up in relation to Will Parks, and her name is Deborah Swanson. Uh, she disappeared from Coeur d'Alene the year before, approximately a year and a half before. Julie disappeared. Why don't you just give the general facts as you understand them for her disappearance, and then we'll talk about how you know this all intertwines. Okay. Well, basically, she was at a party. It might have involved some same people from this outdoor club, and she had told people she wanted nothing to do with Will Parks, and he was the last person seen with her, so he was right away a suspect. Four people told me of the connection of Will Parks to Deborah Swanson. Want me to tell you who they are? Well, we're not going to get get into the names, but I think that yeah, the board anyway, went... four I, different people that said that she was the, uh, her, he was one of the last persons seen with her and she disappeared. I never found her. Okay. Maybe I'll, I'll just say this. She, uh, she was a young woman from Coeur d'Alene, which would be Idaho, which is right across, right, right, across right, right across the river from Spokane or Spokane mm-hmm. or Spokane, and she went for jogging in a park there, and she disappeared. Her car was found. You know, everything was found in her car, and uh, the the park was uh, searched. Of course, she wasn't found, and it's still a missing persons case to this day. Do you? When did you first hear about her name being related to Will Parks and Julie's disappearance? 
day back in 2011, after I got back, uh, one of the first things that happened was I was contacted by investigative reporter uh, Bill Moreland, and he and the, the actual the actual deputy who responded to the scene drove to Battleground, Washington, to talk to me. And they said that uh, he was a suspect in the disappearance of Deborah Swanson. And the detective on the actual detective assigned to the case, not this officer, said that he was the lead suspect. He told our people that he is 100% sure Will Parks abducted Deborah Swanson, and he's 99.9% sure he abducted Julie Wethlin. And again, that's third-party hearsay. But mm-hmm. in talking to, I keep in contact with Julie's rep, well, relatives and Deborah's relatives, and Deborah's sister yeah. told me that she knew Will Parks did it. So that's three different sources. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of uh, just went over that very quickly, right, as we started this. So you're saying that Deborah Swanson was in the same outdoors group as Julie was. Uh, uh, I can't prove that yet, but I've I tried, but I was denied access to the records of that outdoor club. So I can't prove it, but I've got a couple of people who said, hey, I went on an outing with Will Parks. I'm going to write you a letter on that, that he was in that outdoor group. Okay. And I've heard it from several different people that that's where she filed her complaint, Julie, and got him kicked out, but I can't prove that. And the, uh, okay. the way to prove it, these clubs put out an annual every year of list of members. So Joe Dilks, you're looking for Joe Dilks, he's in it in 1986, he's in it in 1987, and 1988, and after that, he's not in the club roster anymore. That would be your first clue, and that's the information you could dig. But I went into that club and told them what I was doing, and they threw me out. I couldn't, wasn't allowed to keep records. But those records exist in 100 different places. All the members, a lot of members probably have roster lists. And if you dig into mm-hmm. it, you can find that he was, was in, was in, and all of a sudden, after this date, he wasn't in anymore. Okay. But I'm Any... not allowed to do I'm not going to, you know, I don't do things that I'm not okay. supposed to do. So I Any... asked them, told them up front what I wanted to do. And they said, no, you get out no, of here. Right, right. You don't want to, yeah, you want to do it surreptitiously, of course. Any proof that Deborah and Julie knew each other? I've heard that, but I don't have proof of that. But uh, maybe mm-hmm. Julie's rep- relatives or Deborah's sister would know that. I've heard it, mm-hmm. but I don't know it. I have no, I have no written evidence that shows they knew each other. Okay. How is it? That there's this possibility that uh, Will Parks might have been the last person to see Deborah Swanson. How how did that even come up? How, how, well, how? a whole bunch of witnesses. They were at a party together somewhere, and uh, Parks was there, and she was there, and he was allegedly wanted a date with her, and she didn't want to go out with him. Or did I, you know? And it's just it's 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 allegedly in the police investigation by the original detective on the case, but I've heard it from. Uh, Deborah's sister, and I've heard it from a couple other people too. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if there was uh, ever anything in writing saying, "Hey, this suspect did this." You know, I just I don't have a newspaper article saying that, right? Because you're not going to do that. You're not going to put your neck out and say, "Hey, he abducted a girl," when he's not even charged. You know, right? Well, uh, of course, I don't have anything in writing. I have comments from people, and I've documented them. I have the date and time of the comment that this took place. Mm-hmm. So was this a party the day before she disappeared or a week before? Any ideas? 
the night before she disappeared, she was missing the next day. The night before she was uh, – the, there was a sighting. These people will say they the saw – the last time she was seen. Okay. This, as far as I know, this was the last time she was ever seen was when she was with Will Parks at the party. Are you saying, uh, John, there's a possibility that she really even didn't go jogging the next day, that somebody just made it look like that? I don't know. I'm just telling you what I know. I don't know that. Okay. You may be right. Okay. So what you're saying is there was this party, and people at this party say they saw Deborah and, and Will Parks together. Correct. All right. I'm not saying that they went there together. I'm not saying they were boyfriend and girlfriend. In fact, it sounds like they were the exact opposite. But that he was at this party, she's at this party. Next day, she disappears, and then Will Parks just happens to also know Julie Wefflin, and who disappears a year and a half later. Correct. Okay. And the listeners should know, although it has not been recently, I have also spoken to Deborah Swanson's sister, but I believe that might have been back in 2017 uh, that I was able to uh, track her down and talk to her a little bit. I don't know if I told you about right. that, I'm not, not John, but yeah, I did have at least one conversation with her, maybe only one conversation, but I did speak to her back then as well, tracking her down. Um, what did she say? Excuse me? What did she say? Uh, you know, I don't have, I did not dig those notes out. Uh, to, I know that I did take oh, okay, uh, but I just wondered, I think the, the conversation, the way I remember it in general was that I told her that, um, you know, although I'm a reporter and I'm working on a reporting on a different disappearance every week, I, I told her that uh, there were people, including you, that were working on Julie Wefflin's and Deborah's disappearances, and I told her that this is an ongoing thing, and I had complete confidence in what was going on, and I wanted her to know that, you know, her sister hadn't been forgotten. It just may take some time, you know, just not knowing. And, you know, she knew, of course, like you said about Will Parks. And I think she also knew that, you know, his name could not be released publicly, you know, for reasons we've already talked about. But I I reassured her that there were people, although they're, you know, um, not working for the government, but private people, you might even call, you know, in in a word, amateurs, I guess, uh, working on this, you know, and trying to put all this together. You know, so that's mm-hmm. I think yes. that I, I think I did get into a little bit about her sister. I, once again, I do not have I did not have the notes out for this interview, but I did talk to her. And I think that she's very grateful um, that, you know, her sister had not been forgotten. But she also told me that she believed Will Parks was responsible. And, um, you know, she did say, you know, something about I do remember the uh, about this party. So here we have um, Deborah. Um, have you ever gone to that park, looked around or anything, you know, in your in your investigation, John, just to get a feel for it? Absolutely not. No, I didn't go learn about Deborah until later after I'd left Spokane and I'm not I intended to never go back to Spokane again after that just because okay. of what happened there. Okay. You live in Oregon now? I live in Washington across from Portland, Oregon. Uh Washington across from Portland. Across the okay. River. Okay, very good. I have a I have a, Washington. Okay, I have a nephew. My nephew John lives in Portland. That's interesting. Okay, um, he's a world wise man. Okay, yeah. Uh, I've never been there, so I'm just wondering. You know, I've looked at. Uh, I've never been to Coeur d'Alene, uh, but I've looked at a map of the park. You know, it's right there on the water. 
Um, once again, to your knowledge, I'm just asking you to your knowledge. Was there the idea maybe that Deborah could have, you know, did they think this was a real abduction or were they thinking at the time that maybe she committed suicide, jump, jumping into the water or something like that? I don't know. I cannot speculate on that. Not, no idea. Okay. Her so, sister said she was a very happy person. Mm-hmm. So. All right. So we, we have this connection. People at this party saw them together. Uh, you've been in contact with her. If I may ask, when was the last time you spoke to, to uh, Deborah's sister? I gave her a phone message a couple of days ago, but I talked to her maybe a couple of three months. I talked to her personally after World Parks was deceased. But I give her updates and leave it on her voicemail. I'll text it to her. That was probably two days ago I texted her or something. Okay. But I thought probably that I was going to be on the podcast. Right. Okay. And I'll make sure. I think I still have her email. I'll make sure she gets a link to it. Okay. So we have this disappearance. So now, you know, we're looking at Will Parks seemingly knew both of these women, and both these women disappear within a year and a half of each other and not very far away from each other uh, either, although we we do have to admit that uh, Will did not live in Coeur d'Alene, did not live near there, but he could have been in the area if he went to this party the, the night before. That brings us to Catherine Gregory, which is a disappearance that happened, you know, uh, six years before Julie's disappearance, five years before Deborah's disappearance. Um, yes. Um, when did her disappearance come on your radar, and how did Will Parks get wrapped up in this one as well? I developed it. One of the things I did is I decided to go back to about 1970 and look at every missing person case in the greater Spokane, Coeur d'Alene area. And it grew over the years. It was, it's now at 56 girls and women. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was maybe 25 or 30, and I called it the. I, one time, I called it the missing 40. And these were cases, not somebody that was murdered by their spouse, and it was solved right away. These were ones that weren't solved right away. And of those 56, about 20 of them have been solved, and a lot of them are attributed to Yates, the serial killer, or to other things. And so. At the time, I made a compiled a list, and I got all these flyers from the Charlie Report and other things, and I got the one. I got a flyer in for Marie Ray Gregory. And by the way, she had just gotten married a few months before, and Julie was married, and Deborah Swanson was single at the time of her disappearance. Mm-hmm. So I get this flyer in, and I'm looking at it. Young girl, really attractive, has a professional job. Abducted, disappeared, and no trace ever found. Bing, bing, bing. Three similarities in the modus operatum. A cute young girl has a professional job and no body ever found. That's the only one of the of the 56 that jumped out at me. And I said, well, that's sure the way this other guy, Will Parks, operated if we, we believe that he did those other two. I said, the, the MO is the same. So that's how I put her on the list. I don't have any evidence. Okay. It's just the crime was really similar. And no other evidence. Okay, and we should know that the the general facts. I've ne- I've not. I, although I've never spoken to anybody in Julie's family, but like I said, I have spoken to Deborah's uh, Swanson's sister. But I haven't spoken personally to anybody in Catherine's uh, family, so you know I don't know necessarily uh, what they think. Have you spoken to anybody in her family? Absolutely not. But I talk to Julie's relatives all the time. I, I haven't. I've, I've talked to Julie's relatives within the last 24 hours. Okay, but, but I'm, I've I'm, never talked to Marie Ray Gregory's relatives. Okay, any any reason for that? 
No, well, it was late into the. It was a year or two into it after I got mm. my first. After I compiled a list, which has now grown to fifty-six women abducted mm. missing from Spokane under suspicious circumstances that weren't solved immediately. I mean, there's way more than that that have been killed right. in Spokane, but these are the ones that weren't solved immediately. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I got her flyer in, I started looking at it. I said, "There's one photo where she looks exactly. In fact, it's on a flyer. She looks exactly like Julie. Exactly the hairstyle, everything." I said, God, she looks just like Julie. Oh, wait a minute. She was a professional girl. She was a nurse going home from school or something. Click. Oh, wait a minute. No body ever found. Most of the times you find a body. So three things clicked with similarities with the Swanson and Wuffman case. No hard evidence. It just it looks similar. Okay. And that's why I put her on my list. I'm, I'm happy to have somebody disprove me. Right. Well, I, that's, as far as I know, they've... Well, I guess what I'm asking, John, is you know you've talked to somebody in Deborah's family, you've talked to somebody, and you know several people or different people in Julie's family. I'm just wondering if Catherine is also one that you think you could attribute to Will Parks. I'm just wondering. I'm not criticizing. I'm just asking. Is there a reason you haven't contacted well, anybody in her family yet? To, yes. Well, please explain. Yeah, there's a reason. The reason was there's absolute uh, correlation that. Uh, Parks was involved with uh, Julie, and Parks was involved with Deborah. So once mm-hmm. I found out that he was a suspect in the Deborah Swanson case, mm-hmm. then I started pursuing that. But there's no evidence at all that Will Parks was involved with uh, Marie Ray Gregory. Uh, you mean Catherine Gregory? Just circumstance. You, you Catherine, mean... Catherine Marie Ray Gregory. Okay. Gregory is her married name. She right. just got married. But... Right. The only thing is, there were similarities in the case, just like when you're tracking something. Mm-hmm. The similarities of the MO, the modus operandum of the case, was similar enough that I put her on my list that I'm, I can do that. And I'm happy to have somebody disprove me. Mm-hmm. But it was similar enough that if you can solve it, you know, you solve one case, you solve the other. So. Yeah. Well, I guess we what I'm saying is it solve. would be interesting. I mean, no. I don't know if her parents would be alive anymore. Probably not. Yeah. But so, you know, I if she had any siblings, I have no direct. Please go ahead. I didn't want to do it because I had no direct connection that he might be uh, connected. Will Parks might be connected to that case. It was only supposition-based, circumstantial evidence, and no direct evidence. Based on it being a similar incident, mm-hmm. and it was the only one of the 56 that was similar. So that's why I put her on the okay. list. Because if I don't put her on the list. And there's a connection that we overlook, because if, if it was a connection and we solved that case, we solved the others. These bodies have to be somewhere. Well, they do. I guess what I'm saying, uh, John, is that in you know maybe contacting once again, I'm going to guess that Catherine's uh, parents are deceased by now, given her age in 1981. I mean, her parents, if they're alive, would have to be well into their 90s. But um, you know, if contacting a sibling or somebody who knew her well. You know, my turn, you know, if you ask me, around. well, you know what? She did know a guy named Will Parks, or you know what? She was in that outdoors club, et cetera. That's what I'm asking. Yeah, yeah, and the only that, way to know that, that, that was to try to that. find somebody who knew her. That's why I guess why I'm asking this. Well, her new husband, was last name was Gregory, and he was a radio announcer in Spokane. Mm-hmm. But I've never contacted him. It was a year or two into the investigation that she mm-hmm. popped up because I got the flyer. Yeah. Uh, and then I looked at the similarities, and I said, oh, that's too similar. Mm-hmm. There might be a connection. Well, so rather than not included, I included it. Well, I think it was smart to do that because I know just 
and I, maybe other people are going to do this too, but that's why we do the program, and that's why we do – not but, but and that's why we do the program. I discovered – you know, I looked at the location that Catherine Gregory was allegedly last seen. She was a nurse very close to where she worked, and I don't know where she was living at the time. I'm sure that maybe we could find that out somewhere. There's probably some public records on the on the internet somewhere that could document that, but – uh, Will Parks was living in Spokane, Washington at the time, and it was only a few blocks away from where she was last seen. That's no way. A, I didn't know that. That's a fact. I have no idea where Will Parks was. Yeah. Oh, I, well, I have the way to figure that out, and, and I, I, I'll okay, show you in a minute. You, you need to – listen, you need to write that up and mail it to me because you'll be tip 58. <laughs> I need, that's how I get tips. That's a tip. Great. All right. I well, uh, I will send that to you. you mail it to me. I will send that yeah, to you. Yeah, that's going to be tip 58. Okay. That's how I get things. They just pop out at you. Oh, yeah, well, I saw the guy grab her and drag her out. What? Yeah, Tell well, me about it, you know? So that's a, that's a really important tip. I had no way is. of knowing if Will Parks was even in town then. He was. I did not know he lived he near her. Oh, wow. Well, he, he just uh, – uh, It just seems to everything. me that he had just moved there. If we're to believe that he moved from Tennessee, I think that he had just moved into the Spokane, Washington area. But he li- he lived about the same distance away from where she – was last seen as about the same distance as how far he lived um, as the crow flies from where Julie disappeared, about two miles. Wow. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure you send that to me because okay, well, you, you no, I won't I forget. I need to have that as a tip. <laughs> okay, I won't okay, forget. I won't let you forget. No, okay. 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 Go ahead. That's great. Um, you know, the thing is, you know. If we were talking about this in terms of Will Parks and these other disappearances, you know, it does occur to me once again with my experience is that it very well may be that Catherine's, you know, husband could at least be considered a suspect. You know, I have to, and the no listeners idea. know what I'm, I'm what I'm talking about here is that, you know, his his story is just like, well, yeah, she left to work and she was never seen again. That's generally what it is, uh, at least. The public on the public record. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff behind the scenes, but being that none of us have talked to her family, I don't know how I would know any more than what's, you know, been reported. Um, you know, it is one of those uh, disappearances where I'm guessing the husband, you know, gets a long look, you know, because well, he just she just left, and I don't know what to tell you. But I will. But factually, Will Parks did live not far. From where she was last seen. So send me everything you can on that. Even I will. if you've got addresses of both sites, send it all to me. Okay. And I'll um, encrypt it into my. All right. Uh, and I certainly think that some of her family should be tracked down. I think that they probably, uh, you know, deserve to know that at least her name has popped up. I think they'd like to know that at least somebody is trying to put some, you know, thing, you know, things together. You know, all these oh, years yeah, later, that she hasn't. Forget, that's a good point. Before I forget, let me tell you that the uh, Gregory case is Spokane Police. Uh, Julie Weflin is Spokane Sheriff's Department. Yeah. And Deborah Swenson is Coeur d'Alene Police. And I talked to the lieutenant at Coeur d'Alene Police. I probably could give you his name, but I've got it. And he told me that Parks was a suspect. It was okay. a Coeur d'Alene Police case. Okay. So that's one more connection okay. that uh, with Swanson. And I talked to him several times. He's long retired now, but uh, I have it all documented what I talked yeah. to him about when. Because, you know, I have this, you know, and, and the listeners know we use 
I use an interview outline for all of the, all of the interviews that we do for the program because I like them to be very orderly. Because, but I, you know, from once again from my experience, you know, all three of these disappearances are quite different. I know that they may have been, you know, done by the same guy, maybe or maybe not, but they are all very different. It, it seems like Julie's was, you know, if we're to believe that Will Parks did it, it seems like it was just bad luck. Is that how would you portray it? Whereas in in um, Deborah's case, it seems like you know she's going out for a jog, and maybe he was stalking her, which is something totally different. You know, he's following her, and then in the third, at least for now, because we we know a lot less about Catherine's disappearance than we know about the other two. Um, you know, Catherine's. You know, it it doesn't sound like it it, it would be a stalking situation, but it, it doesn't sound like it would be, um, you know, bad luck either. It's like somewhere in between. So I have to tell you, as a guy who's covered 170 disappearances, you know, these three disappearances are somewhat different, you know, in the modus operandi. But, you know, we'll just – one in, like I said, Julie's is a full-on abduction. Deborah's is – um, you know, once again, somebody stalking her into the park, and then somebody was able to take her out of the park without anybody seeing, which, you know, is interesting. And then Catherine right, these was. These bodies usually surface. These bodies yeah, I know. usually surface I know. in those cases. I All know. Three of these, no bodies. I know. And so we must believe that Deborah, if she was abducted, she was taken back out of the park, being that the park was searched. So. That is taking some chances, and then with Catherine, you know, she was abducted in the middle of a city, you know, during the day, you know, right by where she worked, which once again, um, I think she was coming out of class. She was going to school to get another uh, mm -hmm. another career path going, and she was leaving school. Is what yeah, I, asked. I don't know if that's true. I just heard that. So once again, you wonder how somebody could have just abducted her right off the street in the middle of the day. So once again, just it just seems to me that the modus operandi of the of all three is a little bit different, and that could lead to believing three different people caused them, but maybe not. We just don't know. Um, yep. Let's talk about you again, John, and then I know you certainly want to thank all the people who have assisted you over the last ten years. How has this affected you since 1987? You're an engineer. You were a, a part-time deputy or a reserve deputy, whatever they, they call it. Um, but I'm guessing that you probably never could have um, expected getting uh, into this. And how has this affected your life? Oh, my wife is nagging me to do chores. <laughs> Other than that, uh, I've had a little, a few ups and downs because I, I, picked some, I made some people mad with some of the things I did. And I got... Personal things happened to me that affected me that were, but I'm all I'm all over that now, and it's been a really rewarding experience, especially if we can solve it, which I think we have. It's just it solved mm. and cleared is two different things. Solved sure. means you're sure it's happened. Yeah. Cleared means the agency having responsibility says this is what happened, and we're closing the case. I can't close the case, but I think I've solved it. Um, mm -hmm. So I've had a few ups and downs in my personal life, but I'm a really strong person. I served in the Navy. Uh, I spent 30 years as a scoutmaster, and I've uh, I've received quite a few. I've received three lifetime achievement awards from three different organizations. So um, mm -hmm. I I have a good feeling about who I am. I don't have problems with myself. I just 
Uh, I think of all that happened, that's a loss. I'm wondering, um, you know, being that you're 77, you are, if I consider that, uh, I think you already did say that, you're like six years younger than uh, my dad, who is still with us. And, you know, hearing about Julie's disappearance, um, do you have any children? Do you think that affected your parenting any? No, by then, let's see. Let's see. My kids were, my youngest kid would have been, um, he would have been a junior in high school, my son. Mm -hmm. And my daughter was already graduated out of high school. Mm -hmm. Graduating or just about to graduate from college, nah, didn't affect him at all. Mm -hmm. Didn't, did not, except that I worry about things. I worry about my granddaughters. I've got four of them. I'm not worried about them because I've seen this stuff happen. Right. And I mean, you can be safe and you turn your, you turn your back for one second and they're gone. Mm -hmm. So it more affected me with my granddaughters. Mm-hmm. What would you? What advice, being that you've been doing this for ten years, and you've of course mentioned this other disappearance um, that you worked on before Jolie's? Um, what advice would you give to other just common people out there that that feel like you know they must get involved, like you thought you must get involved? What would be your advice advice to them? Somebody knows something. Document everything. Document it, and then. Take pictures of everything you can. If I'd have taken a picture of Julie's stepmom's diary, I'd be way ahead of the game. I'd have more people believing me. Uh, mm-hmm. Document everything, and I've documented everything. And uh, like mm-hmm. I say, somebody can say, "Well, that's a lie," but I said, "Why would I lie to myself and put that in writing and, and then have a time and date on it?" None of none. Of I can, you know, if you want to dig into it, you'll find out it's true. So documentation. Look for detail. I mean, I thought of, "Hey, I'm going to count cars going by the substation." Why would you do that? Because then I could extrapolate backwards. If there's a car a minute going by, the abduction took a few minutes. Somebody saw something, and that turned out to be the truth. Six people saw something. Mm-hmm. So document, and uh, don't stick your neck out. Don't contact suspects and pass it on to the authorities. Mm-hmm. And I think any crime can be solved if we, if you had enough resources, your neighbor gets burglarized. If they, if they could assign 100 deputies to it, Look at everybody's video surveillance cameras. You can solve any burglary. The problem is the deputy's got to run to the next one. He doesn't have time. He writes yeah. it up and tomorrow is keyed into the computer. But you can solve almost any crime if you can put enough resources into it. Right. And I'm the resource. I was willing to do that. Yeah. And once again, here at 77 yeah. years old, you're still a, a full-time worker, full-time employee, correct? Yeah, and I'm a, Right, I'm in search and rescue, and I'm a young Eagles pilot right now. Wow. I stopped flying last year, but I fly kids in the Young mm-hmm. Eagles program, and I'm still a Boy Scout leader. Are you ever going to retire, John? Re- <laughs> I doubt it. That'll kill you, man. <laughs> I haven't planned on it yet, but never, five years five years ago, I would have never guessed I'd be a school teacher. I always liked working with the kids because I was a scoutmaster, but no, I never. It was an accident waiting mm-hmm. to happen. <laughs> Okay. You know, you mentioned the diary. Um, could you not go back and get it again, or or is that not possible? No, or? I tried. I tried, and she remarried and moved and threw a bunch of stuff away, including the diary. <gasps> but, uh, yeah, so we don't have it. But it's okay. It just, uh, just the fact that it said Julie feared this guy doesn't prove he's guilty. Mm-hmm. What it does prove is that she knew him, and people are there's some people out there who are disputing that Julie knew Will Parks. And I'm actually working on that now. I'm going to have a a notarized letter of some of the some of the things that prove that Julie knew Will. And if somebody were to track down this adventure club 
and look at their records, they could figure it out. If they talked to a member in it that said, oh, yeah, we had a board meeting on that, and we kicked her out, and we agreed to never talk about it. They don't want to advertise. XYZ Club doesn't want to say we kicked a guy out because he was uh, bothering girls in our club. Yeah. Just like the same thing in the Boy Scouts. I got rid of a guy I suspected to be a child molester. And I didn't make a big deal out of it. I got rid of him really quick. And he hadn't done anything, but I didn't turn him in to anybody. I just mm. made sure we got rid of him. Mm. So. Okay. This is the opportunity, John, that you can take to thank all these people who have – and, of course, you're not done. You're still working on this uh, oh, yeah. if, if not every day well, uh, when you have today. the time. So um, why yeah, don't you – yeah, from yeah, for me. <laughs> uh, that I'm going to that I will that's I will put happens. yeah, that's how it happens, and I will of course document that for you. Uh, this is the opportunity you can take to thank all those people who've worked with you so far. Okay. Please do so. I uh, I want to do that. I want to talk to you about the one, two, three, four, five, six, six people who I, I wasn't able to get a yes back to, and also told me they didn't want to. The two deputies, who retired deputies, don't want their names given out. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the the fellow that went up to Spokane, he's off in the Navy, and I can't get his permission. And then uh, two of the people on two of my BTA team members weren't able to get back to me, so I don't have their position permission. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you, name the people. There's, we're talking twelve people here. I'll tell you the people who have helped me and have been very active: BTA retirees, Ken Westby, Charles Ferris, and Bob Windus. And Bob is a colonel in the Army, reserve colonel. He was in intelligence in Vietnam, and he became the chief of security for BPA. And he was head of the security office when she disappeared. And his dad had been a pilot with BPA, mm-hmm. so he's a BPA brat. That means your, your father or mother worked there. Mm-hmm. So he's always bad because he was the guy in charge of security when it happened. And he spent a lot investigating it, and he felt enough about it. Like He's my deputy team leader on our uh, our team that's still investigating things. Further. Uh, there's a Portland policeman who's on our team and he's been helping us for the last year or so and there's no reason I can't give you his name except he never got back to me and said give it out so I can't give his name out and then there's two more people on our team there's civil engineer Bonnie Gao she's in Spokane, she's a well-known civil engineer she heads up a lot of projects she's one of our investigators, there's two of them there's four actually in Spokane and then there's also Jody Lawrence Turner, who's now in another location, but she was an invested reporter with the Spokesman Review newspaper. Then a big help has been Bill Moreland. He's probably been the most help. He's a still uh, attached newspaper, but he's a a retired investigative reporter with the uh, Spokesman Review newspaper. So those, and then the most, one of the most important people is Jeff Spurley. I just talked to him yesterday. Jeff Spurley's been on our team for two years. He's Julie's nephew. Julie. Huh. Weplin's nephew. So, mm, and her, okay. Julie's stepmom is his grandmother. So, he's the family rep, and he's actually on our team. Great. He's been doing some things lately that, that are still underway. He's trying to get some information from people under Freedom of Information Act, etc. Right. So, those are our team members. Great. And the ones I can't mention, or we're thinking about them every minute, but I can't give out their names. I don't mm. have their permission. That's fine. Okay. That's uh, it's quite a few people, and but that's not surprising, knowing that you know you've been working on this for ten years, and you have a lot of different people and with a lot of different um, pieces of knowledge. You know, once again, from law enforcement to people uh, 
who uh, worked for BPA. And then I think I actually spoke to Mr. Windis way back in 2017. I think you had given me his number, and I actually spoke to him way back uh, when. So I I recognize that name. So that's great. And Bob's uh, a great guy. Yeah, Bob's a great guy. BPA has been great. They've had a reward. They've supported us. They'd love to have the case cleared. And law enforcement is, you know, they can only do so much, and they've been doing the best they can do with resources. You know, I can't fault them. Right. But sometimes you have to point out things to them, you know, that they don't, you don't know this. How It's not intuitive. I had no mm-hmm. idea until 10 minutes ago that Will Park lived near uh, Nurse, Marie Ray Gregory. Yeah. You know, I had no idea. That's really, I think that's kind of a... Well, uh, you'll see it. Well, you'll see it when I, uh, when I send it to you. But maybe we should... Uh, I, I just ask you this, and I'm not going to get into uh, the relationship that you have with... Uh, the sheriff's office, but do you think they think that Will Parks, uh, frankly, murdered Julie Wefflin? Well, he's on. He's still on their suspect list. The case is not closed, but the current people working on it thinks it could have been somebody else. Another guy who died, uh, who was a, a, an inmate and died in prison somewhere else. Mm-hmm. By the way, that person is one of my seventeen. The person mm-hmm. they think did it, uh, could have done it. Is one of the people, one of the seventeen people on my list of suspects, and he's deceased. But mm-hmm. I, they won't tell me why they think he did it. I mean, because they don't have bodies, they don't have any evidence, yeah. or they would have cleared the case. So I don't know how much evidence they've got. I've got a lot of evidence. I don't know how much they've got. I have no idea, and they won't tell me, and they rightfully should not tell me. I don't know what they mm-hmm. found in Julie's locker when they searched it. Right. And we don't, don't even know. And we don't even know if they did forensics on her vehicle. Maybe there was fingerprints or something that led them to some other person. We don't know. No, I've heard there's no finger. No, I've heard that for sure that there okay. were no fingerprints found at the scene. Okay. I know that because okay. I talked to the deputies, two deputies. That okay. Worked. All right. John, any last words before we complete this interview? Uh, yeah. Just send me your tip. Okay. Tips. I love them. <laughs> And it's all, it's all, this all developed out of nothing. I started right. out with nothing. I started I out with an idea. But the three days after I, I went up to Spokane, by the time that two and a half days was over, I had a lot. I already mm. had a suspect in mind. I had three suspects in mind and eventually became 17. And the mm. first suspect I ever got is the one I'm zeroed in on just because of all these things that I found mm. out. Right. But I was frustrated because they, nobody could get him. And uh, people were afraid to to approach him so certain things couldn't come out that now can come out because he's not a threat to me anymore right i feared the guy because of what i heard from other people i know i know that's and that's why uh you couldn't come on the program until now that was that was one of the things that we you know i would check in with you once in a while and You'd say, well, I'd like to talk about it, and we're still working on it. And I was like, well, maybe we just got to wait. And then I came across that post that you made on a particular blog where you pointed out that it just—it was complete luck that I wrote. I saw this comment you made in response to a blog that's written out there from a few years ago regarding Julie's disappearance in which you stated that, that Will Parks had died. And I said, oh, well, really? I would have heard about it. I would have gotten – you would have heard about it eventually because we would have again. Yeah. We talk every few months, but it would have been, I just didn't think about you when I was uh, mm-hmm. sending out information to people. Yeah, that's, that's fine. That's fine. So when I saw that, I said, well, i got to call John and see what's up. And that's how you ended up on the program. And it's 
Uh, it's been a, as great a conversation as I hoped it would be when I first talked to you way back in 2017. So yeah, thank you. I appreciate what you're doing. See, this is this is going to get out there. Maybe we'll get another tip. Uh, let's Maybe hope. somebody from yeah Tennessee will say, "Wow, oh, yeah, I remember that guy." Yeah. But you know. Well, we have listeners in Idaho. We have listeners in Washington. No doubt about it. I mean, we've covered disappearances. Yep. In both states, so um, in fact, at least three in Idaho. So um, yep, we yep. have listeners up there. Yep. So um, you never yep. know. Maybe somebody else knew Will Parks, or you know, we'll just have to see. Yep. Okay. There's other things we're following up on right now that I can't tell you about, but there's a lot of. Uh, I mean, we're just every day mm-hmm. something new happens. Yeah. And we're just going to stay with it. The, the clue, the key, will be finding bodies. Yeah. Or Finding someone that says this person told me they did it, yeah. and, and, and uh, they used a, a club with a six-inch hatchet on it, and of course I'm just making this up, yeah. and it matches the evidence that hasn't been released. They either have got to find the bodies or find irrefutable evidence in a deathbed confession, or get a conviction. Yeah. That's how you can clear a case. It's not going to clear until then. It may never mm-hmm. clear, but I consider yep. it solved. I'm not looking for another suspect. I'm just continuing. Well, if it makes you feel any better, John, a disappearance that I covered very early on in Unfound's existence way back in 2016 of a disappearance of a girl. Her name was Andrea Bowman from Hamilton, Michigan. She disappeared in 1989, and just this past week, her adopted father was charged with her murder, and they found the body on the grounds where they lived. So a 31-year-old disappearance. So it's happening all the time. I know it does. Elizabeth Smart, J.C. Duger, was found alive 25 years after being abducted, the one in California. Yeah. She was found alive with two little kids, and she's got a very happy life now, back with her mom. So these uh, things happen. It does happen. Yeah, it does happen. There's only five cases where girls who have been missing a long, long time have been found alive. Elizabeth Smart, uh, J.C. Duger, the case on, you know, she was on a milk cart, mm-hmm. and the three gals that were rescued in Chicago a few years ago. That was in Cleveland. That's the I only think, five I, I, I know I that was in Cleveland. Pardon me? Cleveland. Oh, Cleveland. Yeah, wherever it was. Mm-hmm. It was back east. Yeah. And those are the only five I know about where a girl has been missing for many, many years and found alive. Yeah. There's probably a few more, but those are certainly one of the, the more well-known yeah. ones, sure. Uh, John, I deeply appreciate you being on this episode of Unfound. It's uh, finally great to interview you for the program. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, good, good work, Ed. Keep it up. Uh, I appreciate and I that. I hope you succeed, and I hope you get to do this full time. Well, oh, I, I do. I do this full time. There's no doubt about that. But we we have a lot yeah, of uh, very lofty goals for Unfound uh, in addition to the podcast. So I know what you mean. Thank you. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. And that was my interview with John Polos, friend and former co-worker of Julie Wefflin. I thank John for finally appearing on the program. I hope you found what he had to say as interesting as I did. If any of you are wondering what a good grassroots investigation looks and sounds like, what John Polos has done over the last 10 years is the perfect example. No confrontations, no harassment, no illegalities. That coupled with documentation, going where the facts took him, 
and really thinking about what information he was collecting. I cannot compliment him enough. Seriously, if you were thinking about investigating a disappearance, I want you to replay this interview over and over and over. It's a great way to educate yourself. Now to my summation, and I'm going to take on each of these disappearances one at a time. I'll be pointing out reasons to and reasons not to suspect Will Parks in these cases. First, Julie Wefflin. Why is Will Parks a good suspect? Number one, he knew Julie. Number two, she allegedly got him kicked out of the nature club. Number three, he lived only a few miles from where she was attacked. Number four, Julie was on a road he would have used to get to his house. Why is Will Parks not a good suspect? Number one, because it means Will Parks seemingly just happened to coincidentally run across a woman who had ticked him off months before. Number two, despite a majority of the neighbors pointing the finger at Will Parks, their answers could have been tainted if they knew Will Parks had a run-in with the police back in 1999. Number three, despite eyewitnesses saying they saw a man matching Will Parks' description that day, the information they provided did not lead anywhere, maybe due to the fact that eyewitness testimony is not regarded as being very reliable. Next, Deborah Swanson. Why is Will Parks a good suspect? Number one, at least four people saw Will at the same party that Deborah attended the day before she disappeared. Number two, Deborah's sister says Deborah knew Will Parks and had problems with him. Number three, the park was searched, no remains of Deborah were found. Number four, the park where she disappeared sits next to a body of water. Her body never washed ashore, reducing the chance that she might have committed suicide. Why is Will Parks not a good suspect in the disappearance of Deborah Swanson? Number one, no one saw him near the park that day. Number two, of course, no one saw him or anyone else carrying a body out of the park that day. Number three, Will didn't live near the park at that time. Number four, there is no proof Will was stalking Deborah to know where she would have been that day. Now, Catherine Gregory. Why is Will Parks a good suspect in her disappearance? Number one, he lived in the general area of where Catherine disappeared. Number two, if Will killed Deborah and Julie, Catherine fits in the same demographic that they do. Why isn't Will Parks a good suspect in Catherine's disappearance? Number one, unlike Deborah and Julie, there is seemingly no social circle connection between Will and Catherine. Number two, Catherine's disappearance sounds to me like her husband could have had something to do with it, more than anybody else. Overall, for these three disappearances, two points bother me in the attempt to connect them. Number one, we just have too many people claiming to have seen things and known things too long after the times of all three disappearances. Where were these people in 1981, 
1986-1987. For example, the guy who came forward recently, who said he saw Julie arguing with someone. Did he really not know she disappeared until the past few months? Really? The other point that bothers me is all three are very much different scenarios. One woman was at work, Julie. One woman was going for a run, Deborah. One was coming out of a class or going to work, Catherine. Not to mention, all three are professional women. All disappeared during daylight hours. Really, all those points should have made these women the least likely to disappear just by themselves. But somehow, Will Parks, if we are to believe it, managed to pull off all three abductions and get away with them for over 30 years. What I'm saying is there is a reason professional women don't get kidnapped during daylight hours. Why? Because they are the toughest target in the toughest environment. By contrast, prostitutes at night, the easiest. Yet somehow, Will Parks allegedly accomplished a very difficult task three times. Believing that three individual men pulled off the disappearances is much easier to imagine. I think what I'm saying is despite all the great work that John has done so far, and I know he's going to continue to work on all of these disappearances, there's still a lot of wiggle room to believe Will Parks is responsible for any of these disappearances. He is surely not a bad choice, and I can understand why he has gotten John's attention, but if it were me, these would be the next steps I would take to reduce that wiggle room. Somebody in Catherine Gregory's family must be talked to, including her husband at the time. The club where Will and Julie and seemingly Deborah were members, that club president needs to be talked to in a way that he or she understands, since its leadership so far has been reluctant to help. The tough part, it very well may be the president wasn't even alive when these disappearances happened. I would go to the park where Deborah disappeared and really try to understand how someone could have been abducted without anyone seeing. I would track down people who called Will Parks a friend over the last 30 years to see what they have to say. Maybe they could point out women who were in Will's life before he got married in the 2000s. Because I think the women who were in and out of Will's life will be the key to making him a better suspect. All these suggestions are in addition to the obvious ones. Getting on Will's land, going through his possessions, and seeing if you really can be connected to Julie, Deborah, and Catherine's disappearances. All this being done legally, of course. What I'm saying is until more information can be collected, I don't think we can totally accept or reject Will Parks' involvement in any of these women's disappearances. I'll leave the rest of the theorizing up to you. And that's the program. If you found it informative, please go to the app that you use to listen to Unfound and give this podcast a nice review. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've been listening to Unfound.